There we are. There. Dude. Oh, the, oh, there you are. Do I know you? No, but that's who you are. You're there. Yes. Hi. Hello. Say hi to Phil. Hi. Guten Abend, meine Schatzi. It is episode 64 of Snakes and Stogies. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good night. Dirty little feet out of socks on my face. Good night, Allie. Growth. <sighs> oh my God. Close the door. You're letting all the turkeys kiss out. Ah. <sighs> How's everybody doing? I was actually sitting back watching the uh, the live feed comments, and they're 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 enjoying it. They're getting rowdy. I like it. Yeah, dude. Everything here. <clears throat> so I know it's cold everywhere else. Um, it's like low to mid fifties here, and it's raining like it's been doing for three weeks. And I just opened the garage, and instantly, like all the glass and stuff started like condensating and stuff on everything. So condensing yeah that's why you see this little like shadowy stuff on the side of my camera there's like condensation on the inside of the, the lens or as us southerners yeah. like to call it the beer can effect yeah that's pretty much what's happening man i mean even this plastic bag with these cigars in it with this month's snakes and stogie sampler yeah courtesy of beaver tobacco i'm actually at the behest of bob rock I'm going to smoke one of these each week, the sampler for that month, and tell everybody sort of our my experiences with it, depending on if Phil has one, he can too. But um, yeah. I think I will start off with... Hmm, I really want that Oliva V, but I know if I smoke something else like that's lighter, I'm not even going to taste it. So I'm going to roll with that Perdomo 20th 64. Six five four eight. It's basically like a corona. So nice. A little bit a little bigger. But I actually pulled one from the last month's sampler because I haven't got this month's. Um, but I was saving it because I love them so damn much. But the VSG. How did I know? <clears throat> I know. And I have that other pack that I gotta give back to you. And I was so tempted, I was like should I just buy this one too? There's another VSG in there. Ugh. See the way I look at some of those samplers, because every now and then you'll see one with, you know, ten cigars or whatever, and there'll be one really good one. And I tell myself, is that one really good cigar worth the eighty dollars or whatever it is for that sampler? Like, right. Is that an eighty dollars cigar? And of course, the answer nine point nine nine times out of ten is no. So yeah, yeah. <clears throat> If you're getting a sampler and you see just one cigar that you know you really like, like if you want to buy it, sure. But keep in mind, you know, you can well, also buy five of them for the same price as that sampler. So, what I love about the Snakes and Stogie sampler is, is that Beaver Tobacco has such an eclectic collection of to offer the people that every time I've gotten a pack, there's been at least one, sometimes two sticks that I've never had because they just don't have them where I'm at. You know, so that's the beauty of it. Like to get get we like to get people hooked on stuff they they can't get. Yeah, right. Absolutely. You know. So and my lighter is of course running out of fluid. So. Oh well, my lighter is on its last leg, and now it won't even look. Look, I have to. I feel like a welder. I have to use the pick first, 
and then and then it goes. You probably have it turned up too high. No, I too low. I use Croil to clean the 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 heads, and the flint got wet. So then Croil is a penetrating lubricant. So it it it's it's shot. I gotta buy a new one. But they were like eight bucks, whatever. Yeah. The uh, so I am. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was gonna say real quick. I know everyone's dealing with snow, and I hope that everyone in the country who is partaking in our beautiful show. Uh, I wish them all the best with their snow endeavors, and I hope that all their reptiles are happy and warm. Um, it's crazy because, uh, you know, I live on tennis courts, and I hear cars drive by, and I hear cars drive by, and I hear sirens, and I hear kids screaming because they don't want to go to bed. But tonight was the first night of the year that I heard the chorus of Cuban tree frogs to the point where I almost was wondering if you could hear them too. And that they just stopped, but it's so loud. It's, it's quite impressive. But then again, you also think, well, no, cause they're invasive and it's horrible, but yes. So it's not, their fault, say, there. it's not their fault that they're there. Um, I mean, we have like a pretty jam packed show tonight. Like I'm actually pretty excited about it. We, so me and Phil have realized that with the last probably months worth of episodes of snakes and stogies uh that hasn't really had a whole lot of direction like i feel like we just kind of kind of rambled and jumped from thing to thing and usually we'd like circle and do loop-de-loops back to these things and you know we get tangents and stuff like that and so we've like we're making an effort to really bring make it more cohesive yeah have a better plan for like an outline and things we want to talk about and make sure that you know, we have something to loosely like what I do with THP and Snakes and Stogies, a little insider information is like if you've ever been on the show, you know that I send you a, an outline that's maybe 10 questions. And so I have that so that, A, there's enough wiggle room for us to where if we go on tangents, we're not eating up all our time. But there's enough of an outline to keep things on track. Yeah. So I try to do that with this, too. Um we but have- let's also let's also say too is that this show is is honestly meant to be more of a hangout, you know. Yes. And and we love the live comments, we love chatting with everybody, and we love the Facebook feedback and the YouTube feedback after the fact. Like that's awesome. And I get so many people that message me about the stuff we talk about because they can't get on the live chat because they're at work mm-hmm. and they listen to it later or whatever. But we are still going to keep it a, a very much chill hangout thing. But we also realize that we can derail quite easily. Yes. <laughs> so we want to keep it at least on the train tracks. So it's, I mean, it's like, it, this is, I would say this is more casual than THP. Not that THP is anything super, uh, sure. <laughs> Billy Jacob said, we officially have magnetic train tracks. I like that. You can still take it off. You just requires a little force. Um, <laughs> like THP has always been, uh, well, I guess, depending on what sort of era of THP we're talking about, we're talking early THP. Some of it was a little rough, but, um, that's I, I don't know. That's been a little more straight laced, a little more straightforward, like snakes and stogies. It is a little more casual, like more more opinions, less information, I guess. Sure. Compared to THP. Like this is more of like a like a philosophy thing, like what we think and how we do things. And then THP is much more about like the person we have on and picking their brain and answering the questions that we have for them. So I am very excited about the things that I wanted to talk about. Um so am I. I actually, uh, I, I got, I pulled up old pictures. Hold on. Can you guys hear the frogs? Listen. I don't hear anything. 
your mic it's really like, isn't that sensitive like damn it, it's perfect like it picks you up and like none of the background stuff because it's literally going but like hundreds of frogs it's amazing hey what's up mr smith my daddy says hi daddy says what's up love it so i'll talk about this real quick since that's people want to know about these samplers and stuff inquiring um, minds want to know if you're in the snakes and stogies group every time i do one of these samplers i put a like i post an announcement post that basically outlines the filler wrapper and binder of these and sort of my notes um so this is a perdomo 20th anniversary connecticut uh they have uh in this line, they have a Connecticut, a Sungrown, and a Maduro. In my opinion, the Connecticut is the better of the three. Um, and I like this size in particular because I like thinner gauge cigars. I like Coronas. Um, I like lighters that work, which apparently for Phil is a very hard thing to find. Um, so this one is a lighter. It, it is a lighter smoke, uh, but it will, because it is that thinner gauge and it is a little more concentration of the flavor. Uh, we've talked about filler wrapper ratio before. Uh, this does have a little bit more... Uh, what's the word for it? It's got a little bit more going on than some of the other Connecticut's in this line and other Connecticut's in general, just because it's a thinner smoke. So you're going to get a little more flavor. It's going to be a little pepperier. Um, I'm kind of going through it. So I'll do updates as we go through, but right now I'm just tasting some, some pepperiness to it and um, I'm sure it'll get better, but yeah, my dad is a hardcore lot 23 guy from Perdomo which you know it's kind of odd with Perdomo stuff i find that like uh like the lot 23s i love the maduro more than the connecticut but then with everything else that Perdomo does i prefer the connecticut over the maduros so i really hope i don't lose power because it's it's thundering so that would suck um, but i guess we could talk about lighters real quick since we were talking about that you have a you have a single flame no this is the um this is a, uh, I want to say Vertigo. It's one right, of the. But how many burners does it have on it? Oh, no, I'm sorry. This particular one's three. Oh, okay. So yeah, you'll notice three. you go to a shop and you'll have single torches, double torches, triples, and quads. So what me and Phil have are threes. Um, I prefer a three. A quad is okay too. I think it's kind of a little overkill. Dude, everything's covered in water because of the condensation. Um, so like this tabletop lighter, this is also a three burner. I prefer threes just because it's easier to light. Um, single torches, which just have a single burner on them, in my opinion, like they're fine, but I feel like you burn through a lot more gas and you have to refill it more often because you're taking longer to get it lit. Um, with something like this, it's just kind of ready to go. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, I like the, the three because you can feather the flame more than you can with a traditional just soft torch or soft like like a bic lighter like for example i mean i don't you shouldn't really use bic lighters per se because you're going to taste that that lighter fluid it's gross right. um, but if you notice if i light my my cigar my cigarette yeah. lighter like this see how it moves so much mm -hmm. on a torch justin hit your torch real quick just so people can see it's steady and it's not Consistent. moving yeah consistent it's exactly the same and mine's all messed up so it wouldn't look good that's why i had justin use his but i can turn my hand and i can rotate that flame and get as far or as deep away into it as i want and not necessarily have to continually roll the cigar and i can get a, a consistent even burn and like even on this one you can see that's let me get the camera right mm -hmm. i mean 
I pulled pretty hard on that first couple draws, but that's a that's like almost perfect. Yeah. So. And so uh, like so there's soft flames, which is what a bic is, or lighting with cedar, and then there's torches, which is what you see, like what we always light with. The difference is, and there is a difference. If you light with a with a soft flame, like a bic, or uh, ideally you'd take like a piece of cedar. I don't have any cedar strips right now, but. Um, you take a torch and you light a cedar strip and then you light your cigar. If you're using matches, it's also a little easier because you have more time before the flame gets to your fingers to get it lit. Um, but it burns way cooler than torch does. So you're, you're not really quote unquote burning the tobacco in a sense. You're getting a little more flavor out of cigars that way. Um, burnt cedar actually sells, smells really good too. Um, so there is, there is a, a, a place for both. Um, torches also say- are just easier. I also says I enjoy a match very much so, but because I'm outside and there is a little bit of a cross breeze, match can be a pain in the ass. Um, one thing that I notice a lot of people do is, especially if they have a short match, like a little little stick, wooden stick ones, they'll they'll crack it mm-hmm. quick and they'll hold it in the crook of their hand, which is fine, but they'll do that right in front of the end of the cigar, and that sulfur that burns off initially from the oh, it was magnesium that's in there, that sulfur that burns off real quick you'll pull that in and that'll taste really funky. So I always tell mm-hmm. people if you're going to use a match, light it, give it a second to kind of do its spark and thing. And then once you see the actual flame, then go for it. My, my personal yeah. opinion. Yeah. And that's what it basically boils down to, you know, is so I, some people just want to get it lit. Some people want to like, there's like the ritual aspect of it and people want to make it, you know, a thing and an, an experience and that's fine too, you know, whatever. But I need your opinion on something. What do you got? So our our buddy Ryan Reed came by the house today. Yes, sir. Got all the dart frog tanks. So I'm officially out of dart frogs. Um, You're amphibianless. I am amphibianless. Aw, Smitty. Uh, I've mentioned it before. They just they were taking up space that I really needed um, for to you know focus on the beards and the other stuff. Uh, but he offered me a pair of. Uh, Rio Fuerte beaded lizards. Wow. Now we're talking. Because, well, he got, I mean, he got all the frogs, all the tanks, all the lights, like the stands that some of those tanks were on. Like, it was a lot of stuff. So, I mean, it's not like it was like I gave him $40 of frogs and he's like, hey, yeah. here, you know, here's a, you know, whatever they're going, $1,000 of lizards or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I was talking to him because I was like, I, you know, space wise, like those are, those are not small lizards. They're not massive, but they're not they're not tiny either. We're not talking about right. like blue tongue skinks here. Yeah. Yeah. And he said I should totally get something, either build something or get something that I can use as the background to where there's more height less, rather than than depth. Cause they're climbers. They're more they're more, I won't say arboreal. They they're bigger climbers than Gila's are. Right. Um and have that as like the background where you see like a pair of just big beaded's just hanging out. Which actually sounded pretty cool. So, so what's your question then? Because I have a couple things. Should, should I? I mean, should I? Should I do it? Henry says take them. Uh, the fact that you're even asking me if you should acquire them, I think, is foolish. You should absolutely acquire them. Don't ask me; just do it. Now, the question, that, the real question is though, how much room did you free up in the snake room, and do you want to allocate that empty space to more snakes? Or do you want to make it the, the, the beaded enclosures? No, if I was going to do beaded, they would be in here. Yeah, 100% take them. I agree with that. Um, that's what 
uh, talking to Reed, he keeps his in his garage. He said, you know, in the winter it works out because it doesn't really get super cold here. So it naturally kind of cools them off. Oh yeah. Um, and then he said in the summer it stays warm and humid enough that they'll be fine too. Yeah. hundred percent. So, now it's just a matter of what is your opinion on what size cage I should get. I was thinking like a, the minimum, a six by two by two. So in my personal opinion, are you going to I'll probably keep them together. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm thinking I, ideally a six by four by two, six feet tall by four feet wide, six feet wide and four feet tall. Okay. Okay. So here's my thing. I am all for beaded having the height to climb. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually seen it where guys made put bird nests and like, let them raid the nests and like had foliage, you know, creeping vines and stuff. And, and it was awesome. And I've seen copious amounts of pictures of them actually in trees. Yeah. So I'm all for it. However, I know a lot of guys that they just don't do it because they've given them the option and they didn't, they didn't climb. So it was almost mm-hmm. like a waste. Uh, I don't like keeping stuff together. So if you were keeping them separately, I would say let's do uh, six by three by two or three, right? And mm-hmm. then stack them on top of each other. But if you're going to do one big wall unit, then rock and roll, man. Do it. My only concern is if you're going to do it as a backdrop, you have to figure out how you're going to have the lighting so that it doesn't blow out your camera and so that it doesn't have bad glare and you can actually see the well, that's actually so i'm also looking at changing up my table because i have this round table you saw it when i was here i'm really tired right. of this round table i'm going to look into like a legitimate like 60 long or 60 wide um like desk uh right. and then i'm going to have so i have these boom arms i found a little mount that instead of it being a mic clip it's a uh, like a tripod thread so I can mount my camera to this. Um, and I have more of these. And so my plan was if I have a, if I have a straight table instead of this round thing, I can have both the camera and the mic facing me and they will be adjustable so I can angle it however I need to. Um, so I was figuring either behind me or right here to the side of me along the wall. Um, I mean, I would do it behind you because if it works out as a great backdrop, it would be cool. Yeah. If it doesn't work out, you just put the the, the background you have now, you know. Mm-hmm. But regard, so. regardless, you need to get them. They're going to be extremely rewarding. And the best part is Reed did all the real work for you. You know what I mean? In terms of getting them established and taming them down and all that jazz. So you really don't have to. He actually said. Train I think them. They, they all were produced by his original pair. And that original pair. Uh, he said they originally came from Frank Menser. You're kidding. Your, yep. Your buddy. My, my late your, mentor. Your late mentor. Wow. So, That's fantastic. I thought that was pretty cool. That means that I have to get babies from you. I mean, I'm not, I'm not jumping that gun too quick, but when the time comes, I'm your first customer. They are very pretty. I mean, they're they're out of all the heliderms minus helas, like outside of helas. I think the exasperatum are the are the prettiest. Yeah, I don't of the beateds are the prettiest because I'm a hela guy through and through. But of the beateds, I think they're the prettiest. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, you need to do it. And yeah. you were saying I, I think I caught early in the group chat that you know Reed even convinced Katie. Yeah, kind of. I was like, dude, sell them. Sell them, really, like sell really them. sell them, sell them. Because you know? of and course, when, you know them being venomous and stuff that made her a little 
apprehensive. And but once you know, Reed was also like these guys. You know, they're his animals. A so he he's you know he's he knows what the quirks kind of of the individuals and stuff. And he says these guys, you know, they'll they'll headbutt you. You know, they'll kind of hiss. They'll make a show. He's like, but once they're out, they're you know they don't care. So yeah. Obviously, it's not something I'm just going to be. It's not a bearded dragon, and it's not something right. I'm just going to go in there and grab. Right. Um, but he says, you know, if you do have to move them and stuff like that, he said they're not they're not difficult. So, no. And you do have the the peace of mind knowing that no one on record has ever died from an envenomation, which is good. You just wish you were dead. <clears throat> Yay! I say you do it, man. It's going to be awesome. I think you're going to have a lot of fun with it, especially since. Even though they are carnivorous, there is a lot of variability in the diet, and I think you're going to enjoy that, especially with you know eggs and different and the mice that you're raising. Well, I was surprised because he's he is also feeding them a lot less than I thought they needed to be fed. <clears throat> they're not going anywhere, you know. They're just chilling and right. catching. So, yeah. But he said even even some healers only eat like once a year. You're kidding in the wild or in, in the wild. Oh, okay. But yeah, I mean, I I go good stretches on my lizards uh, on the healers, and I I do small meals often for a good amount of time, and then I take like a month off, and then I'll do mm -hmm. you know, start back up again, you know. And by small meals, I do mean small meals. So like, if I have an adult female, I'll give her like two rat pinks on a Monday, and then maybe like Wednesday or Thursday, maybe give her another rat pink. And then maybe Saturday do like a, a cracked egg, just yeah. whipped up raw in a cup, and she'll drink it like a milkshake, things like that. So, yeah, and I mean that makes it even easier because, as we all know, I breed my own mice, so that's not an issue. Yeah. Eggs, those are a dime a dozen. I have my aunt and uncle have chickens; they have a whole like chicken compound, so they have more eggs than they could ever deal with. So, I don't even have to technically pay for eggs if I didn't want to, you know. Yeah, it's just, it's in a it's it's in a good spot. It's just figuring out the caging thing, which I'm sure you'll be fine. I'm, I'm gonna hit up Sean and uh, see what he can do. But yeah, I think did. I mean I I would rather have something slightly taller than deeper. You know, because like like we we've talked about before is like that using that that space efficiently. Like it's okay to do stuff like that where it's maybe it's not as deep, but it is taller as long as you're using. Like maximizing yeah. all the space between those those four walls. Yeah. What you need to do is 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 have the enclosure set up and then have six walls. Have ramps that go up to mm -hmm. like a plateau or a landing, and then have another ramp that kind of goes along parallel. That way, if they fall, it's not like a, a big fall. But what I I've always wanted to do, and I never had the, the gumption to do it because I really didn't have a lizard that was you know needed it. But take a uh, grout like normal, you know, normal grout that you would normally use for like tile floor and paint grout all over the ramp and the, and the landing Give it and some, then, some texture and, and throw on your, your eco mix or your, uh, your eco earth or your jungle mix or whatever, or just peat or whatever. And then as they're climbing, it's going to wear down them claws too. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was, I was going to ask you and read about that. Is you ever trim yours down or anything like that? Yeah, I, Cause I've I never, seen pictures of them and they're crazy long sometimes. Yeah. People let them go. Um, there's been bouts where my girl had some some gnarly nails, and I, I kind of just left them because she's going to walk on hard. I have hard surfaces in there. I have excavator clay and rocks and stone, mm -hmm. and I've seen it where she she broke a tip off, you know, um, and they just grind it down on their own. Uh, the ones that you see that look like the guy from the Guinness Book of World Records, <laughs> those are usually people that don't have a substrate. They're on paper. Yeah. 
just on, you know, uh, like a cat. There's nothing for them to scratch on. So they're naturally going to get a little gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would never cut in my opinion. I would never use like a a cat toenail clipper. I would do like a Dremel if you could, or even just like an emery board. A a petty paws. Yeah, sure. But like, even if you just got an emery board and just hit it with an emery board. And again, never do this by yourself. Always do it with someone helping because it is a venomous animal. I'll preface that. Are they big diggers? Uh, yes and no. Heel is way more than um, uh, than beat is. But you got to remember, too, is a lot of the time they're stealing burrows or borrowing burrows. Yeah. You know, you know you'll see a, a tortoise squatting. burrow. Yeah, they're squatting. A t- tortoise burrow will have, you know, a tortoise and a Western Dimeback and a Heel all chilling together. So. Oh, well, I'm going to have to figure out how to make it happen. I think you, you're going to have a lot of fun with it, man. I'm glad. I'm glad this is panicking. Well, and that's kind of like, you know, how I've said I've I've sworn off things with legs. Yeah, but that's... that's This is a little different because we're not talking about, like, bugs and vegetables and fruits and all that, you know, every other day. Uh You know, it's almost... They're almost more snake-like than anything else, so... Well, I consider consider them snakes. Like, when people ask me, like, oh, what's your head count on snakes? Or how many snakes do you have? I count them because they, they basically are. Brad says he uses floor tile upside down, which makes sense because it has like yeah. a texturiness to it. So, yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> Good stuff, man. In the Heliderm game, we'll did see. I tell you? Did I tell you about the book in Daytona from my from my mentor? Yeah, I think so. Should I tell that story? Is it a bad story? No, I don't. I I remember bits and pieces of it. But. Okay, so um, the guy for those of you listening. Uh, my late mentor, Franz Menser, or Frank as we used to call him, um, he's the guy that got me hooked on taxonomy. He's the guy that got me hooked on, you know, unique and seldomly seen species. And he's really the guy that burned scientific nomenclature into my mind and made me crave it because the guy was literally a walking textbook. Um, he knew two things or three things. He knew how to be a bodybuilder. He knew fossils. And reptiles. That's all the that's all the guy did. And I know and a lot of fish too. But uh I think the fish was to equal everything out. Um but he had given me a couple snakes and for uh gifts over the years, and then you know, things pass away, time goes on, and then Frank wound up passing away. And uh I didn't know until I was I was going every year I go up to Philadelphia for a week to like visit family and chill out for like a week. And I usually on my way back, I'll stay at his house with his, his wife, Marianne, <clears throat> excuse me. And I'll stay for a day, maybe two days and then finish the drive back to South Florida. They're in the Carolina. They were in the Carolinas and I couldn't get a hold of Marianne. I couldn't get a hold of Frank and I found out that he passed away. And, uh, you know, like not to sound morbid, but like, it's nice to have like mementos or pictures or whatever of someone that was yeah. significant part of your life. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I really didn't have it. I had some Facebook photos that he had sent me over the years of like him in like the eighties catching, you know, aberrant scarlet king snakes in my parent, what would be my parents' yard before it was developed and things like that. Um, but anyway, he had a massive book collection, massive, uh, makes uh, probably two to three times the size of Scott Ipers. I've been collecting, it was all fossils and snakes and lizards and fish. He had been collecting books since the crap, the fifties. And 
I always wanted to know what happened to those books. And I was at a Daytona a few years back. And my first thing I always do is I go to the book guy. Because <clears throat> I figure if there's a good book there, it's going to get snatched up in the first hour of the show. Because there's yeah. other people that think like me. So I always walk past everybody, go right to the book guy. Well, there was this one book. Um, <laughs> it was actually by Johan from the African Snakebite Institute. And it's Snakes of Southern Africa. And it's a book that I've always wanted. And I, I mean, I could buy it on Amazon, but like part of it, part of the fun is the hunt of it, you know? Yeah. So I see this book and I'm like, oh, that's Johan's book. I've always wanted it. I'm going to buy it. I don't even look at the price. And I take it and the guy opens it up to see the pencil marking of, you know, $49.95 or whatever the hell it was. And he opens it and I see a stamp that says Franz Menzer, Plantation, Florida. And I was like, whoa. No way. And I said, where did you get this book? Did you get it from a short little woman with dark black hair named Marianne? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Her husband passed away and I bought her whole collection. I said, really? I said, did you have any more of his books? He goes, no, man. That guy had the best book collection in the world. All his stuff sold in a New York minute. He says, except for this one. I said, well, I'll take it. And I have that book now. And uh, I called Marianne because we still talk on Facebook from time to time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then it wasn't until Southeast Carpet Fest when I was with you and Ryan Reed yeah. and both Reed and I were like, man, we know each other from somewhere. Come to find out that I would go over Frank's house two or three times a week. He would go over Frank's house two or three times a week. And on multiple occasions, he would be leaving the place while I was just getting there. And he'd be like, hey, man, like we never like formally that really. I, re okay, I remember that whole thing. Yeah, man, it's a, it's a small world. It's mm -hmm. wild. It's great. And now you have the offspring of Frank's lizards. So it's awesome. It's awesome that we can all be connected, you know? Small world. Yeah, it's awesome. So, so let's get to we, the agenda. I wanted to talk about the most challenging species we've kept, but I feel like that ties more into the pros and cons of a diverse collection afterward. Okay. Um, However you want to quarterback this. So, pros and cons of a diverse collection. Because there are many. There are many. Many pros, many cons. I would say almost equal. Pros. Yeah. Um, pros for me uh, is if you're in the, you know, the hobby long term, you keep a diversity of things. You have a better sort of... Uh, Sort of like with age in general, you have a better perspective and you have a better scope of of experiences, you know. So obviously, if you're just keeping ball pythons, you know, 10 years, you'll be you'll know those things inside and out. But then you get something like Ganyasoma or Chondros and it's like, you know, sometimes it can throw people off. Um, yeah. So I think having and maybe that's that's. I guess part of the problem too is when you have a scope like that and you have these different things, uh, a, it may, it makes keeping your focus difficult sometimes when you have interest in so many things and your room is only so big. Um, but I think the most important positive aspect of it is just being able, you know, having at least an idea, you know, if someone has a question about a certain species and it's like, you know, I haven't kept Texas rats, I've kept birds. Um, you know, so I kind of understand the similar habitats and things like that. Yeah, just I don't. I'm horrible at explaining it. I've been thinking about it all uh, all day. But 
I'm sure you can put it more succinctly than I have because you also have kept very, a little bit of everything. Very diverse. So I I I like to have a diverse collection. Um, I've always had a diverse collection. It's always been what I wanted. It's always been what I liked, and. I think that the, like you said about maturity and age and experience, they all go hand in hand. Um, when you're young, you have delusions of grandeur and I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to keep every species of, you know, Australian Python, or I'm going to keep every species of Cobra. And uh, you realize that it is attainable if that's what you really want to do, but is that really what you want to do? Or do you just want to work with as many species as you can or, or photograph them or just, read about them or whatever it is. So, we, you know, we think about, do I really want to keep the diversity or do I just enjoy the hunt of it? Do I enjoy the challenge of a particular group of animals? And it wasn't until recently that Hen Dog actually, you know, told me, he's like, listen, man, you're, you're stagnant with the animals that you got. You love them. They're your babies, but you're, you're, you're looking for the next thing and you don't know what it is. And he says, you got to find a species, you got to focus on it. And it doesn't mean you have to get 30 of them. You, you get one or two or five, whatever. You want to have a small group of them. That's great. And you focus on that species so that it rekindles the feelings that you maybe have had in the past that have maybe fizzled out or lingered or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then you go, <clears throat> excuse me, you go all the way back to in the beginning when you were younger. And again, piss and vinegar, you know, uh, and you maybe get some stuff that you thought you liked and you didn't and you learned that you didn't and it's not that you don't like that animal you just that animal wasn't for you that's part everyone, of well everyone changes too just like cigars you know everyone's taste over time will change you know right. you may come into cigars loving the strong heavy stuff and then as you get older you come to find you like connecticut's more than anything else and vice yeah. versa you know and i think it's whether that's a subconscious thing or just something that just happens to be you know the direction that you head through you know past experiences or whatever um I don't know, like Amazon Trebos for me are a good example, or Antaresia. You know, I've, I've had a good bit of both in the past. And I'm kind of at a point now where it's like, yeah, Amazons are cool, but I I really don't have any desire to keep them again. Same with children's pythons and spotteds. You know, it's just, they're cool and all. But I've just decided that they're just, they're not, they're not for me. They're not my thing. They're cool. I like them. You know, I definitely yeah. have a, a good appreciation for a really good looking children's and granite spotteds are awesome, but I just... I don't feel like dealing with them. I don't feel like, you know, I don't want to deal with babies. Um, yeah. You know, you got to kind of pick and choose your battles, I guess, when it comes to that. But it's one of those things where if I had only had, you know, maybe one of those things in previous years, like rainbow boas, I've had one rainbow bow in my life and it was cool. It wasn't anything that made me want to say, I got to get more of these. Um, and so I think it's just, like I said, it's the direction of where your past experiences sort of, it's like rear wheel drive in a sense. Like that's bumps in the road and things are what determine sort of where you where you head. Uh, you know, in, your, in your younger years, the diversity allows you to test the water and see what you like and what you don't like. And then in your older years, you know what you like and what you don't like. Or yeah. maybe you want to revisit something from the past and say, you Well, know, I think, yeah, you when you do it early like that, you find something that you get cemented in, like Morelia for me. Right. I got into carpets way earlier and i never i got those before i got ball pythons and i think that has a very heavy hand in why i prefer morelia over anything else i mean i've had some ball pythons on and off over the years too and that's another thing where it's like they're cool they're nice to have around i guess but when it comes to like what i really want to walk into my room and see and really want to reproduce it's carpets yeah 
dude car, uh diamond jungle f1 hybrid was my first ever python flat out you know i only kept colubrids before that and uh it's funny because it was i got it today's the day after valentine's day i got that snake um some people know the story some people don't uh, i got that snake on valentine's day when i was 18 and my girlfriend and i at the time who were actually friends we still talk it was my first like real girlfriend and her and i got in a big fight on valentine's day it just something happened i don't even remember what we were fighting about it was in, it was dumb young kid the sadie crap. hawkins dance yeah and uh it, i had the day off from work and i mapped out what i was going to do and i don't know if we our plans got can't i don't know anyway i got pissed and what's josh saying Joseph. So diversity uh, has been fun this time around, but I forget I have frogs until they uh, croak on otherwise silent nights. He said, I have a Pac-Man that straight up owes me a new pair of pants. <laughs> That's awesome. So so it's Valentine's Day, and I got in a fight with my girlfriend, and I go to Underground, and I wanted a new snake. I was like, I'm going to buy a new snake, and I see this Diamond Jungle F1 hybrid, and I really didn't know anything about carpets or diamonds. Emotional spender. And I was like, that thing's adorable. I'm taking that home. And I named him Valentino. And he was born in 2004, and he still lives at my friend Chris's house. He's seven foot. You know what's hilarious? In a parallel to that story, there was a girl I dated at 1.2, and I got her a ball python from PetSmart on Valentine's Day. And guess what I named it? Valentino? Yep. And then the day that I ended up leaving, <clears throat> she was at work. I borrowed my dad's truck. I packed up all, all my shit. And moved back in with my parents, which is like not even 10 minutes up the road from where she lived. <laughs> and then she came home and I contemplated taking that snake with me. I was like, you know, I really don't think she's going to take care of it. But it was also like that ball python was kind of a dick. So I was like, no, she can deal with it. So I left him, left him there. And he was named Valentino and I hated that thing. <laughs> well, my Valentino turned out to be a raging asshole. And, uh, my friend Chris now has to treat it like it's venomous because there's, you can't tell the animal. You can't remove with your hands. You will literally just go right for your face. And uh, it's just that, you know, that black mouth coming at you. And he, he likes it because he's a, he's a former venomous guy. And uh, <laughs> it's good. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's going back to the diversities. I only had colubrids up until that point, And that right there spawned a Morelia addiction, you know. And that's, so, I mean, that's another pro is like by deciding that you want to diversify and try new things, you find out, you know, you may find something that you really enjoy, you know, like the right. heloderma, you know, I've never kept heloderms. Yeah. Um, so these would be my first ones. Could it spark something that makes me want to pursue them a little more? Who knows? I'm not going to say it will or it won't. Uh, you know, I could get them and turn out that, you know, hey, they're just, they're not my thing. Yeah. Um, but you don't know until you try, which is kind of a good and a bad thing. You know, something that we see a lot on social media is people with the impulse buys, you know, they go to a show, they see a Beyond green tree or something, they buy it and they're super jazzed to put it in a, you know, natural setup or something. And then just come to find out that it just doesn't do well. And, um, some people may decide to take that on as a challenge to do better. And that may end up sparking something as, you know, a love for that, that group of snakes. Um, or it could be like my first Bioc that I, I kept horribly and I, I killed it in, I think, less than three months. And I, at that point, I, had, I was out a good bit of money and I was 
really annoyed. And I said, I'm never going to keep these things again. <laughs> yeah. You know, fast forward 12 years. It was like 2007, I think. Um, you know, here I am. Yeah. With all of them. What's funny is uh, you'll also, you got to talk about like disposable pets, <laughs> like those bunny rabbits at Easter and stuff like that. <laughs> nice bread. Um, you know, people talk about disposable pets and that's horrible. You know, people adopt these animals or they buy these animals and then they just pawn them off because it wasn't what they thought they wanted. And I almost, I had, when I was a young kid, somebody told me, it was like, oh, you want to get a tattoo? Cause you just want to get a tattoo and then go for it, get a tattoo. But if you really want like a work of art on your body, it said, you know, draw out a, a picture or print out a picture and tape it on the mirror in your bathroom. So that way, every single time you use that sink three, four, 10 times a day, you have to look at that picture. And if you still love that picture after like a year, then go ahead and get a tattoo. And obviously no one does that. You know, we, we get tattoos cause we feel like it, but I almost feel the same way with a lot of species is that, I've done my homework, I researched it, and maybe I waited till the next season or I waited until I had the money. But that time of evaluating it also was part of the having a diverse collection because it was like, mm -hmm. do I really want to add that type of animal? Do I really want to add that 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 habitat too? Because we haven't even touched base on that, is that uh, you and I, our collections, although very eclectic, uh, they're pretty much all around the same they all, yeah, they all fall yeah. around that same parameters yeah. as far as care. You know, there's not a whole right. lot of, there's nothing that really needs extra special, not like diamond pythons that need a separate space with yes. know, colder yeah. temperatures. Like everything's fairly within the, a set range. Yeah, don't, don't go buy a baby diamond python and expect to keep it in the same room that you keep, you know, 10 enclosures with Euromastics. Like that's just not going to happen. You're going to have major problems. Oven. Yeah, we call that enough. Call it the surface of the sun. <laughs> so... So think about how you want to have your diverse collection and that'll, that'll give you a better idea of, of do you really want that animal or is it just something that you're like enamored with at the time? You know, yeah. It, yeah. you know, my, my roommate's a great example because my roommate, he really, really wanted to do axolotls and he went full gusto axolotls with chillers for the tanks. And he had prize adults that he spent tons of money on and, and, you know, the, 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 honestly, the chiller system that he had was all like saltwater fish tank based and getting the pH levels right. And he realized that as much as he loves them, he didn't have the time to really do it correctly. So then after about six months of it, he realized that this is more than he is willing to do. And therefore he gave them to friends and you know sold the chiller stuff to some fish tank people. And you know he got out of it, but he took the time to think about how he wanted to do it. And then realized, nah, I'm a Python guy. I got to get out of this. What, yeah. what was I thinking? You know? So we've all been there. We've all done it to some degree or not. Oh, yeah. yeah. But and I think I don't. And maybe I see it in in chondros in particular. You know, you have some people that get their first chondro, and within no time, they're up to like six of them. Yeah. And yeah. I don't agree with it. That's not how I would do it. Right. Because um, I do think there is such a thing as moving too fast. Yeah, because, uh, you know, people, especially now, everyone, you know, it's very, very much in fashion to want to breed everything. Yep. You know, I'm guilty of it. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm above it or anything like that. I'm the same way. Um, but I do think you're kind of you're kind of 
selling yourself a little short. You're making things a little harder on yourself because the first time that, you know, one of those animals has issues and ends up being something viral like Nido, you know, now you, you have all these animals you just dropped a ton of money on. And now you have the giant, you know, outbreak of sorts. And since you haven't had a whole lot of experience with things prior, you may not know how to handle it. And it just becomes one of those things where, uh, it just becomes too much. And yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also a, a just going back to venomous because it's what I do, man. It's I've seen so many new venomous keepers, whether they have a mentor or not. And it, it, honestly, it's it's better when they have a mentor. Uh, let me formulate my thoughts. Excuse me. So you'll see individuals that I start mentoring in the beginning when they're first starting out. They're like, oh man, one day I want to have a kaboon viper, and then. They say, oh, man, one day I want this. One day I want that. But, you know, oh, I still want that Kaboon Viper. My first one's going to be a Kaboon Viper. After I put, you know, three years with you, Phil, I'll be ready. I'm going to I'm just going to go for the gusto and get a Kaboon Viper. And then after three years or two and a half years or however long it takes them, they go, man, what was I thinking? Mm -hmm. You know, when they've had the Kaboon Viper for, you know, they've been using mine, so to speak. And they're like, man, why did I ever want that thing? Like, and it could be anything. It doesn't have to be a boon viper it could be anything it could be you know bears rats it could be yellow rats yeah. it could be bowling pythons but that does happen and then what also happens is people that are extremely excited about the venomous and they go oh man i'm finally gonna get my license i'm finally gonna get my license and they bite off more they can more than they can chew and they put in a uh, a deposit on this snake and they put a deposit on that snake and they buy this snake and they buy that snake and now they have their license and before they realize it what they should have is maybe one or two animals or maybe three or four animals. Mm -hmm. And in the first six months they have 30 and they go, wow. Yeah. What, what did I do? It's kind of like you wake up at one point and you're like, where, how did, yeah. You know, I've done it. I'm, I'm firmly convinced that we all every like four years go through a cycle where we do like a spring cleaning, you know, especially people that have that, that have a little bit of everything like, like Phil and I, um, it's one of those things where like every four years we kind of stop and we walk in a room and we're like, how did I end up with those and that and this Oh, and you yeah. end up selling off those things that you're like, I don't know why I have this, you know, it was be it an impulse buy, be it something that you were interested in briefly. Um, and it's, it's case, funny. Everyone seems to agree with that. That Like I said, it's like once every three year, three to five years, you kind of wake up and you're like, I really don't like dart frogs. I got my first dart frogs three years ago. Mm -hmm. And I just got to a point where I was like, I need that space and I don't feel like dealing with the fruit flies anymore. Not that they're hard to do or anything like that, but when your cultures keep crashing, it's kind of a pain in the ass. I've also had it where people, and I don't really have it right now, but in the past I've had people that were, Hey man, will you hold on to this for me? And mm -hmm. I say, sure, no problem. You know, they're moving or, you know, they're having a baby and they want to, you know, get the baby established first. They don't want to deal with their animal. And all of a sudden, I've been guilty of it too. You know, my good friend Zach, I gave him, I don't even remember, I gave him like two or three snakes. I was like, yo, I'm moving. Can you hang on to these for me? And at the time, we were doing venomous classes at his home. So twice a week, I was there taking care of him. So I wasn't, it wasn't really a burden for right. him, but Did they were still, them off. right, but they were still there. And then eventually, like other people did that and they did pawn them off on him. And people did that to me and they pawned it off on me. And it's like, oh, I'll get it. And, you know, uh, my friend Chris, who has the the my my diamond jungle hybrid, you know, I had a friend who was like, "Hey man, will you take these this pair of Southern Pacific rattlesnakes for me, or Northern Pacific rattlesnakes, or Oregonus?" And 
I was like, no, I don't got room, but you know, Chris has room. Can I give him to Chris? They're like, yeah, yeah, give him to Chris. What was a year before that guy picked up his animals? And it's like, you got to be mindful of that. But at the same time, just because you got stuck with those animals doesn't mean you have to keep them per se. You know, if you fall in love with them, you fall in love with them. But if you want to get rid of them, get rid of them. Right. They, were, they, were, they were dumped on your doorstep, so to speak. Obviously, through legitimate means, don't just, you know, give them away to anybody, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, the, the venomous thing kind of like that diversity, I think, does give you a major leg up in having sure. kept and worked with different stuff. Cause obviously that puts you in a better position to teach somebody else how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who's been working with nothing but trimeresterous, atheris and, you know, whatever else yeah. them now teaching someone how to work with mambas. That's, that's kind of yeah. apples to oranges, you know? Absolutely. So what are the cons? Um, I know we talked about sort of, we mentioned, we kind of covered at least two of them. You know, the, the diversity means you have to have certain parameters for how you're keeping different things. Like, obviously, the way I keep my boiga is not the same way I keep my beards. Obviously, the way I keep my brettles is not the same way I keep my chondros. Yeah, yeah. So you do kind of have to have be a, a jack-of-all-trades, in a sense. Um, sure. Jack-of-all-trades, master of none, if you look at that way but yeah i uh, i also noticed that your your husbandry needs to be more observant because you may be inadvertently affecting one species or another simply by association um you know if i've got a stack of visions and i've got i'm not going to put the hot stuff in the bottom because he rises, you know what I'm saying? Right. The cool stuff in the bottom. Mm-hmm. So thinking like that and how you're going to arrange it can be troublesome. Um, and you need to be mindful of it. You know, at the same time, you could have an issue where I hate to say it, but you know, those people like at, at the pet co-type places where they have a ball python and a red tail bow in the same enclosure and they're selling both at the same time. That's not good because they both come from different parts of the world. They're different animals. And who's to say that what's floating around in the water bowl from the ball python isn't going to affect the red tail. And same thing with your tools and your tongs and all that. So, you know, talk about different, you know, diseases and pathogens. And, you know, you can have a, a collection that's extremely diverse and inadvertently hurt your other animals per se. Yeah. It's, uh, Oh, Joseph wanted to know how are the Oregonus in captivity? They are pains in the ass. They are, uh, they never stop rattling. Um, they never stop rattling. And uh, they basically get very, very defensive. I made the mistake of keeping them together, um, which was fine when we were trying to breed them, but man, like one gets fired up and it starts popping shots at the other one. And then the one starts hitting the glass and it's like, they, it, it's too much stress in my opinion. Um, it's not like Westerns where they all gang up on you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Gang up. You, you know what I mean? I'm being facetious, but, but yeah, I, I would say if you're going to keep them, uh, keep them extremely relaxed and limit human exposure as much as you can to keep the stress levels down. And I would say, try and keep them separate. 
simply because they are so on edge. Well, we did a, I did a post in the Snakes and Stogies group asking if people wanted to add any questions to, you know, relating to what we have outlined and Brendan Meyer, who's a fellow Baird's addict, nice. uh, asked, does diversity automatically equal a more time-consuming collection to feed, clean, and breed and maintain? Uh, where do you find the balance in diversity to be? It's a pain in the ass. I think it it just depends on on how many things do you have that are on opposite ends of the bell curve. That's true. That is true. You know, I mean, to me, like I have record keeping cards, right? I'm horrible about staying up to date on them. But the rate that I feed the corns and the bairds and the rat snakes is different than the rate I feed the chondros. So sometimes it does get tough where it's like, did I feed that rack last week, the week before? When was the last time I fed the chondros? You know, so I mean, I make it harder myself by not keeping track of those things. But I mean, that is one thing like it is kind of I I've talked about it before where I, I do like having this stuff that is, you know, requires no thought to keep the bears, the corns, the stuff that it's if anything goes wrong, they're going to be fine more than likely. Uh, but I like to, to, you know, balance that with the stuff that is a little more difficult a little more sensitive be it chondros the jansen i you know the boygo which i think the boyger just as hardy as anything else uh you know so it is kind of a balancing act uh but bill brings up a good good point he said diversity just means consistent work no days off bug and salad eaters eat more often so they get clean more often typically snakes don't which is a good point i mean we're talking about diversity just in the in the sense of snakes you know but when you're keeping stuff like the geckos, like when I was breeding crestes and stuff, uh, it, when I was done with crestes, I was done, man. And it was one of those things where I, I missed just having to worry about snakes. Yeah. You know, it was like, man, like Sundays were my cleaning days with geckos. And I'm, we were talking like six hours of my day just in cleaning and getting everybody on the same page, you know, with food and water and stuff like that. And after a while, I was like, this is just, I just want to be able to, enjoy them uh you know just, uh, just worry about feeding once and it take yeah. it it would take me an hour just to clean you know just as many snakes as it would with the crested's you know it's just right. i find you're dealing that, in that realm and stuff and just to expand on that too is that you know you're dealing with you know however many you had a hundred geckos of all the same type eating the same prey item eating at the same time and you could kind of base your schedule around the fact that they were all uniform you know, I've got different species that need to eat more frequently or less frequently. They're eating different prey items. And I've even go so far as to do different times of the day because like I've got animals that I'll try and feed them in the morning and it'll just sit there and rot. But if I feed them at, you know, 10 o'clock at night or you know six o'clock when I get home from work or whatever, I get a different response because that's their crepuscular cycle or whatever. So that needs to be taken into consideration as well. I don't know if that's a pro or a con because you're you're experiencing this the variety of of, of life, mm-hmm. but at the same time it's a pain in the ass because I got to remember crap. It's it's Wednesday. I, I got to feed those guys because I didn't do it on Sunday when I fed everybody else. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's how it was for me with like some of the geckos that would eat bugs and some wouldn't. And so was it like? am I really going to go through and offer the ones that I know eat bugs and the ones that might eat them? And then the ones I know don't eat at all, or am I just going to not offer bugs, you know, 
And um, a, a good majority of them didn't bother with dubia roaches when I had them. And so it was like, why am I bothering with bugs? You know, and I even then I only fed bugs when they were small, because as soon as they hit like 15 or 20 grams, they started packing on so much weight because I was feeding them bugs that I had to just cut them off. And, you know, getting crested still or gargs to lose weight is impossible. Yeah without flat out just starving them for an indefinite period of time, which I mean, I don't, I don't really agree with that. I don't think that's right. Um, <clears throat> and so I got to the point where I just stopped messing with doobie altogether. Um, but Jeff made a very good point. That's something I've said a lot. Uh, biggest thing is you have to be realistic and know your limits. Yeah. So knowing, knowing if you know your limits and you're, you're honest with yourself and you know, these things about yourself, that is a huge leg up at the same time. The only way you know your limits is to push those limits to the point yeah. where, you know, I don't want to deal with 80 crested geckos a week cleaning and feeding. Yeah. You know? And then you, you also think about different stages of life too. Is certain animals require more attentiveness when feeding, uh, whether it be, you know, small arboreal species, whether it be, you know, Amazons or Traverserus or, I mean, e even stuff like, like even, you know, highly aquatic species that are fish eaters, you know, I mean, we see, <laughs> We see Doc feeding uh, uh, his Nerodia on tongs and he clacks the tongs on the thing and the Nerodia shoots out and grabs the fish. Like he's obviously worked with those animals to a certain extent where they've been almost trained to do it. But, you know, there will be a day when I breed, intentionally breed Tremerserus. And I'm going to have my hands full with feeding baby arboreal animals, you know, pinky parts and tease feeding and trying to do it at different times of the day and learning their cycle and learning how they do it. And at the same time, still manage the other animals that are in the collection that kind of don't care or already have their schedule. So it being realistic with yourself is a really big deal. And just, and, and, and that's, that's, that's a con and a pro in itself because you can have the diversity and the eclecticness and enjoy this, you know, menagerie at home as long as you know what you're getting into. And, uh, you know, Dominique pulls up a great uh, question is, you know, how does having a diverse collection change your quarantine procedures? Um, certain times it's, yeah, Jeff's talking about, you know, giving his Kendoya guppies. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, going back to the quarantine stuff, it, it depends on your ability in your home. You know, do you have a room that's a quarantine room? Do you have a rack that's a quarantine rack? Um, do you have a closet that's downstairs that's just that happens to be it you know do you use quarantine in an external facility you know um depending on the species you need to think about you can't put five different ecosystems in one rack and expect them all to be at 80 degrees it's just not going to work so now if i'm quarantining something that's montane i have to set that up in my bathroom or in my kitchen or somewhere that's going to be cooler and then whether I use heat or not, opposed to throwing it in the standard quarantine rack, which happens to be 82 degrees the, the whole year round. So you just, you have to map that out ahead of time. You know, and, and it comes down to the thing of if you can't afford the enclosure, should you really be buying the animal? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's been plenty of times when we've all got an animal at a show or we were gifted an animal from a friend or we just saw one and we're like, crap, man, I've always wanted that. I need to buy that right now while I can. And oh my God, I have nothing at home to put it in. Mm -hmm. um, and then you run over to Home Depot or run over to Target or Walmart or container store and throw something together. We've all been there. We've all done that. But ideally, you want to have that worked out ahead of time. And if you're quarantining, 
then you definitely need to have some kind of thought as to how you're going to go about it because I'm not going to get price eye from Cody and throw them in the same rack as my, you know, juvenile carpets that are living at 82 degrees. It's not going to happen. Well, there's a stress factor there too. You know, um, the way I quarantine a Baird's, uh, versus how I'd quarantine the Jance and I when first getting those, you know, those are two different animals. The Baird's isn't going to care. The Baird's is going to ride out quarantine. No problem. You know, the Jance and I, that's one of those things And home hair scrubs are probably a good example too. You know, that's, that's a high stress, high strung animal. And I'm not going to put it somewhere where I'm going to be in and out of the room constantly. The cat's going to be running around. You know, my child's going to be running around. It's going to be in a dark, dark closet, which is where I quarantine a lot of my stuff. And, you know, if it was a Baird's, that'd be one thing. But when we're talking about something especially imported that are sensitive, be it chondros or ganyasoma or scrubs, you know, that requires a different, that that requires a little more thought than, you know, quarantining a corn or king or Baird's or, uh, and then, Brent asked, have you two or anyone in the group ever kept uh, Pacillonotus, uh, the bird snakes? Billy, Billy Hunt has. Billy Hunt's the man. Oh, yeah, yeah. And dude, Billy's Pacillonotus are amazing. And like, I'm up to my elbows in arboreal stuff right now. For me, my, my level of elbows. But if I didn't have so many arboreal species as it is, I would totally get some from Billy when the, when the, when the time comes. Because his animals are so nice looking, man. They're so cool to watch. And then feeding them is a is a uh, it's a bit of a project, but you're having fun while you do it. It's not the annoyance of come on man, eat it, come on man, eat it, come on man, eat it. It's not like that. It's you're enticing the animal, and then when the animal does decide to 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 prey, it's a show. It's awesome. Uh, Justin's gonna see it firsthand in two weeks. Yeah, and then Dr. Wyman said, under the topics of both diversity and challenging species, the trial and tribulations of working with import animals as it relates to both. Mm. Excellent point, Doc. Um, So I guess before we answer that, we should answer the first question that we had lined up, which is what's the most difficult species or most challenging species that we've kept? Mm Mm-hmm. I guess in general, like in any aspect, what's been the the one species that you consistently go, this is a either very frustrating, or I just this is this more stre- most stress inducing. Uh, so you want to go first because I have a very long one. Yeah, uh, mine is simply just going to be chondros. Honestly, yeah. I out of all the snake species I've kept in my life few have been more frustrating than than chondros and it's not that they're hard to keep they're not um it's just when you're dealing with imports or you're dealing with you know animals that just got shipped across the country and just i out of all the species i've kept chondros are the ones that i've had the most issues with hasn't been boiga the ganyasoma have been a breeze you know granted my scope with those is limited um none of the rat snakes have been a problem it's chondros are the ones that have consistently gone. Why am I keeping these things? And what if, what advice could you give to someone that it's hard to say advice in one sentence or one paragraph, but what is some advice you could give to someone that's really curious about doing the fresh import thing because they want to have a less expensive animal 
they want to have a less expensive animal or they want to have new genetics or they, you know, they see, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They see potential in a particular specimen and they really want to focus on that because they like it. What's your advice for that? Avoid it if you can. <laughs> okay. I mean, if someone in like, I'm not going to tell someone not to get an imported chondro if they're if they're dead set on doing it it can be done i think it's much easier if you've had the experience over time not only just with the species but with imports in general i just think you're you're really doing yourself a disservice when you're getting the you know the cheap the cheap chondro is yeah. a trojan horse in a sense because you know they're, they're you gotta they're almost guaranteed to have worms um mm -hmm. Just that, and keep them in a in the same tub for as long as possible. Uh, and I mean, Dom brings up a good point. Her fresh import has cost her over five hundred dollars of vet care. Yeah. So yeah, you spent two hundred fifty dollars on an imported bioc, but guess what? Now you're paying double that for the vet bill. You're spending seven hundred fifty dollars on a on a chondro. You could have bought a captive bred one. Yeah. For the same price, and yeah. probably had much more enjoyable time dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's well put, man. It's well put. So, What's yours? So I um, I've not to sound like a cocky douche, but I've worked with a lot of species over the years. Most of them were not mine. Um, the places that I've worked granted me the venue to really play with a lot of weird stuff over the years. And uh, I was racking my brain this morning when you sent me the list. Uh, I was racking Jeff brings brain. a good point too, real quick. He said, I think yeah. who you get your imports from is also important, which is oh, very true. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. It also depends on who they got it from. You know what I mean? Because there's plenty of reputable pet shops that got it from a irreputable wholesaler or vice versa. You know, the wholesaler had the animal in tip-top condition and it went to a bad pet shop. You know, and who knows? Right. <laughs> um, so going back to difficult species I, I rack my brain as to what was really like what stood out in my head as i probably don't want to do that ever again um and it wasn't you know for one reason or another it was just collectively it was a difficult species for me um and i picked three actually um and i have pictures of of my animals from back when <clears throat> the first one is actually a species that i don't think anyone has in the states right now um that would be the what is, in my opinion, incredibly rare, and I'm going to butcher the scientific name, Aristocophis macmahonii, which is the leaf-nosed viper, or macmahon's viper. So here's a picture that we're going to share, because everyone's probably going, what the hell is that? Uh, Not to be confused with McGregori. Yes, correct. Very much different. So that is Aristocophis. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen those in a long time. Very long time. I forgot those existed. So these were captive bred in, oh, man, I want to say Turkmenistan, which I don't even think they're native there. Um, and we got them imported at Strictly in, like, 2007 or 2008. Um, and they were incredibly hard to get to eat anything. And they lost weight pretty rapidly. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of their desert nature, we were apprehensive to overly hydrate them. Um, 
So we basically would miss them on occasion and we kind of kept them on Aspen for a while just because we were afraid to do sand. And what wound up being, what wound up working was we had uh, lizards from Egypt that were, I don't remember what they were. They were some kind of like, you know, desert swift or something. Uh, lizards from Egypt and we wound up using them and rubbing them on a uh, frozen thawed baby gerbil. Yes, it is a fancy Russell's <laughs> Thanks, Cox. Irvin's um, here. Hi, Irvin. Hey, what's up? T-Dog. So, so we went up using the Egyptian lizard that was frozen, and we s- rubbed it on a frozen-thawed gerbil pinky, and that's what we got them to eat. And we went up selling them. I think they were $1,100 a piece at the time. Damn. And uh, I realized that money aside i probably would never work with that species simply because i don't think i could replicate that now i just yeah. i just I, just, I think it would be too difficult let alone, getting gerbil pinkies was hard enough as it is brendan meyer says his were mangrove monitors he said never again will i work with them the one i had uh, i had i put such a bad taste in my mouth zero out of ten would not recommend and that's a good you know those and like the imported the green tree monitors I've never heard good things about imported tree monitors, unless it's someone, you know, like Forrest, who was very well prepared to deal with that kind of stuff. That's another one that I feel like people see it shows. They've got more money than sense. They buy it, and then it ends up just being a disaster because, A, the animal's a complete spaz and probably doesn't want to chill out at all. And they usually just kind of every, all the ones I've seen, they they look kind of rough, at least import wise. Yeah. I don't think they're being imported anymore, but when they were, yeah, I don't know. So I so, can see that being a, being a tough one. Most definitely. Um, so this was the first species that honestly came to mind. Um, the second species going to another snake. Um, <laughs> this one's going to really piss off Justin, uh, which is okay. I'm okay with it. Uh, and the if, next if one, I'm wrong on any of that, please let me know. The next one would be. Atheris oh yeah. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Atheris hispida, this is the hairy bush viper or the spiky bush viper, however you want to call it. Um, this picture is a horrible picture because it was from an old LG flip phone. And uh, <laughs> this is the best I could get with it trying to bite the phone um, and, you know, me being safe and all. Uh, that's actually a uh, <laughs> Henry Martinez says, wild caught Indonesian dendrophilia. Give me anxiety. Yeah, we know your pain, Henry. Um, but the Hispana uh, are naturally slug eaters in the wild, uh, and they come from the central Congo regions of Africa. This specific specimen was my personal animal. Um, we got, I think, 25 or 30 of them in on a shipment from, at the time, I don't even think it was Democratic Republic of Congo. I think it had a different name. I think it was, uh, forgive me, I should know my geography on this one. Um, it was still Congo region. But I think it was just called Congo at the time. It was like a southern, you know, almost like Katanga province area. Um, and this is also we on the same shipment. We actually got uh, uh, Naja Nana, which was previously uh, Christii um, water cobras. So it was mm-hmm. a, it was a very weird shipment. But we got these hispida, and everyone was like, well, "What are we going to do? We're going to give them slugs? Like, what what do we do?" And there was no can of snails, you know. Yeah. Uh, there was no escargot from a Chinese food market. Um, so I wound up getting 
green tree frogs and I would rub the underside of an apple snail on a wild caught Florida green tree frog. And the frog obviously hated it. Uh, and then I would hold the frog by the back legs while it was alive and then put it in the face of the hispita and the, the, the snake would bite it and eat the frog. And I would do that about three times a week and it maintained body weight. And then I realized what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Again, just like the, the Mac Mahoney I'm rubbing a snail onto a frog and then feeding it. And all I could think of was this thing is probably loaded with parasites. The frogs probably got parasites from the snail. Who knows? Um, just by <laughs> physical touch. And, uh, and after about six to eight months, I wound up, you know, letting strictly sell mine and they had sold the other ones. I don't know whatever happened to it, but Again, an amazing, amazing species, but the the cons outweighed the pros. I think that's that's just one of those species, man, that just was never made for captivity. No, it just wasn't. I, I, I mean, all the ones I've seen look really rough. Yeah, even him. This this specific male that I had. That's the he healthiest was, one I've seen. That's, that's the healthiest one, and he was housing three green tree frogs a week. And actually, towards the end, I'm pretty sure I got him eating green tree frogs that because I had frozen a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. um, just so I wouldn't have to keep doing this whole scent thing. And he wound up taking green tree frogs with no uh, snail scenting, which worked. But again, I was like, why do I want to keep doing this? So you know, we got rid of them. Um, at the same time, uh, it wasn't it wasn't as display showy as a squab. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, Ryan Cox asked when I said apple snail, I mean giant apple snail. Yes, I did. Uh, giant apple snails are invasive in Florida. Um, you can find thousands of them in the canals. Uh, luckily, our shorebirds uh, and, and migratory seasonal birds, they love them. So they're actually, they do a really good job at keeping the numbers down, but they're here to stay. So um, I know Strictly used to get bags of them and put them in their trough tanks with all their turtles and everything just because it would help take care of the algae and stuff like that. Um, and then the last species that I could really think of, uh, I chose this species specifically because the husbandry wasn't difficult, but for whatever reason, I had trouble keeping them healthy and I had a lot of trouble getting them to breed. And that would be... Uh, Smog mozambicensis. So smog mozambicensis is in the uh, sungazer or girdle tail lizard family. Cordylidae. Uh, Cordylidae, yes. And uh, they're one of the larger species. Uh, they obviously hail from Mozambique. Um, the males get this fire red underside with the jet black dorsal. The females are sexually dimorphic as well. They, uh, they're more of a slate gray color with no color underneath. Uh, Basically, the color of that rock that he's sitting on, a darker color of that is what the females look like. And when Marcus and I got really, really big into girdle tails, this is one of the, the main species that we wanted to work with. And we had a couple choice prime males. Uh, Marcus had a couple. I had this one. And then I probably had three or four females with him. Marcus had about three or four females. And my females were not doing well. And I didn't know if the male was picking on them or if the male was consuming all the food but I could not get them to acclimate appropriately. I think it was a stress factor. Um, I don't think I had the temperatures exactly right because Mozambique is such a huge country. Uh, they have so many different ecosystems and depending on the time of the year, you have part of the country is dramatically closer to the equator than the other half of it. Mm -hmm. So 
not knowing exactly where this, these specific specimens came from made it really difficult. And again, there was no iNaturalist back then. You know, we, we, we couldn't really, shy of talking to someone who lived there, which again, Facebook hadn't blossomed yet. It, uh, it was tough. So we wound up giving them all to a friend who lives, I believe in Michigan, who's another Cordillas guy. And he has since had, oh, like seven or eight litters from the animals that we gave him. And uh, we just gave it to him. We're like, listen, man, you, you, you try your luck. So clearly it was something with either the South Florida climate, whether it be barometric pressure or my temperatures, or maybe we weren't feeding them enough. Maybe we were feeding them too much and they were stressed from the food. Who knows? But this particular species, although does very well in captivity, didn't do well for me. Yeah. I, I can see it. Sorry, that was a little bit of a rant there. No, I mean those those are those are good picks. Like I said, mine is just just chondros, just because that's been the the one that's been the biggest disappointment. But They're not, not a, to keep. But when they go not, downhill, they go downhill. But not enough for you to abandon right your love of them. Although I will say, having lost that adult female, it has been a little discouraging. But I mean, the ones I have now, they're not going anywhere. Yeah. If anything, it's kind of nice now that I can just worry about the colubrids and coast. Yeah, it's good. Uh, And then, so Andrew Keith, he said, would you move to a different state and completely start over job housing, etc., specifically to legally keep a species that is illegal in your state? Uh, but that you've also never kept. He said, little background on the question so you know where I'm coming from. I've only been in the hobby for about a year, but it's completely consuming. Any free time I get is spent trying to learn something about the reptiles in ge- about reptiles in general, or at least entertaining myself with YouTube. He said, I'm considering a move to a different state in the future solely to legally keep exotic venomous. I already have a copperhead and a cotton mouth, hoping to add some horridus this year and eventually try and get into some exotics. He said, I have no other reason to move, but I don't have much... Uh, keeping me here either besides my job sounds extreme to most people i'm curious what other people's take is on it also for clarity the plan would be to secure employment move and then try and find a mentor within reasonable distance that would work with me i'm not trying to just move to a new state and buy a king cobra for my living room (laughs) i'm glad i'm glad he clarified (laughs) disclaimer disclaimer what do you think smitty uh i mean i think it depends a lot on your situation so for me, up and moving my family, finding new jobs, finding a new school for my child, all those things to me are not worth it just to be able to keep something, you know. Uh, I've talked previously about how I'd love to keep arboreal vipers, be it atheris or trimeresserus or any of that stuff. Um, and I may eventually, when Ellie, you know the child gets older, um, when Ellie gets older, but right now it's not going to happen. I'm okay with that. Uh, and that's part of the whole knowing your limits thing. You know, I had native venomous and that was cool and all, but when it came to having a kid in the house, whether those cages were locked or not, I figured it was nothing, nothing could happen if they just weren't there in the first place. So it depends on your situation. I mean, if you're, if, if it's just you and you've, you know, the job is the only thing keeping you there, then, you know, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Yeah. I, uh, I think that, my experience is different than most in the sense that I was granted really good venues to learn and to learn what I liked and what I didn't like and to work with a very, very wide assortment of animals. 
Um, I would say that if, again, if you have nothing holding you back and you can look for another job and you want to do it, then do it. Like Justin said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Uh, me personally, at this point in my life, there's nothing really in my goal box of goals that I would want to move specifically to do because I kind of have the ability to work with when I want to work with where I'm at. Um, I, I love Florida. Um, I've made Florida my home. I'm, I'm in theory, never leaving. Um, granted, if there was some dynamic legislation in one regard or another, that might change my opinion. You'd be in South Carolina with me. I'd be in South Carolina with you, or I'd be in Texas with Chris, you know? Um, Ooh, that's a tough choice. Yeah, it's a tough choice. Um, but I personally don't think that I would the, – the, if the juice is worth the squeeze, then go for it. But mm -hmm. if it's not, then it's, it's not worth it. Because you can always take trips to work yeah. with animals. You can always go on excursions. And, and you know, COVID aside, you know, if you really want to go out west and, and work with rattlesnakes, then go out west and work with rattlesnakes. You know what I mean? Or, or if you really, if that's your passion, if that's your love and you want to, you know, even dip your toe in, then do it. Because again, you'll, you'll, you'll miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So I say, you know, if nothing's holding you back and you want to do it, then do it. Um, if it's something like I have to uproot my family, I have to change my career, I have to, you know, change my life, then you really need to ask yourself if it's worth it. You know? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's ultimately that's an answer that only you will have, yeah. you know, because yeah. everyone's circumstance is different. Like I said, mine is, uh, you know, I got a mortgage and stuff. I really, to go through the process of selling a house, finding a new house, you know, getting a mortgage on that one and moving the family and the school thing and the work thing. It's just to me, I just, I wouldn't do it just solely to keep a species that I can't have. Right. You know, right. if it was like a job or something that like pay would have to be very, very, very good for me to feel compelled to, to up and move my, my entire family. And even then that's not entirely my decision. That's, you know, when you're married and stuff, there's someone else who has 50% say in that kind of stuff as well. Oh, yeah, it's it's ultimately it's it's whether that's something that you find worth the time and uh, resources to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and the other thing, too, is, you know, you just working off of this one example of the what we've been given. Um, no strings attached can find another job, uh, you know, thrill of it, you know, changing, changing a new a new chapter of life. That's all awesome, but imagine if you move to Florida because you want to work with manatees and you love manatees and you want to work with manatees and you want to work for a nature facility and swim with manatees and you know rescue manatees from you know ones that can you know hit by boats and stuff, and then you hate it and you go, man, I hate manatees. Now what? <laughs> these things suck. These things suck. So. I think you also almost have to feel it out first, you know, take that herp trip, visit that zoo, you know, make friends with people that keep stuff and see if you can, you know, enjoy mm -hmm. their collections with them and live vicariously through them a little bit and then see if it's really, if that juice is worth the squeeze, you know, you may find out that you hate lemonade, you go, crap, now what? But you wouldn't have known had you not tried it. Exactly. It's true. It's true. 
So. And Dr. Wyman had another one that I actually really like. He said, not really part of any of the questions, but I would also like to hear what you guys have to say about the pervasive nature of the hobby slash industry that pushes towards breeding over just keeping. It seems that too many conversations seem to revolve around your animals. Your animals are old enough. Stop being lazy. You should breed them already. Blah, blah, blah. I see this so often without people giving serious consideration to who they are speaking to. Important things like one, running out of room, two, mental health, three, physical demands, four, just do not feel like it. Once upon a time, keeping for the sake of keeping was what the hobby was all about. Okay. It's a great and question. This, this is interesting. It's okay. a great question. Um, <clears throat> so when I, you know, I ask for you and Dom and Phelan's and Chris's and Billy's opinions on stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy when someone asks you what they should do sure. because you're not the one that has to deal with it. If I say, right. Hey, should I get some bimoculata? You know, the ones I've been looking at um, from, you know, that are come from unknown sources could be Europe uh, that have the potential to come with, um, Man, me and Reed were talking about this earlier. I could not think of the name of it's on the tip of my tongue. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Hold on. And just for the record, Jeff, I do not hate manatees. They're beautiful, majestic creatures. Just an example, bro. Crypto. For some reason, I've been drawing a blank on that all day. You know, crypto apparently is is not uncommon from a lot of European collections, from what I'm told, um, by legitimate sources. Uh, so it's, it's a question of like, Hey, is it worth when it comes to that kind of stuff? Is your, is, is putting your collection at risk worth that kind of thing? You know, your friends may say, yeah, man, do it. But if something were to happen, it's not their animals that are, that are paying the price or going downhill. Your, you know, their collection isn't on fire. It's true. Um, so it is kind of tough and I don't think it's something anybody should be like pressured into doing like if you're in a group and people are like just breed it already do this they're old enough like if you're not prepared you're not prepared yeah and that that goes right back to knowing your limits and knowing yourself um like running out of room very easy to do you know I, anytime i decide if i want to breed something I, I try to look at least two years down the road and say what am i going to need space wise uh in general, if I'm going to be breeding corns and bairds and cyania and chondros, and like that's going to be a lot of babies. That's a lot of hatchling racks. So you got to think about a how much money you're having to put into it, b how much space you're going to have to allot to it. Uh, you know, mental health. I've been down that road too with the cresteds. I was so burned out on cresteds by the time that I decided to get out of them that I I literally could not wait to get rid of them all and just focus on snakes. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very big thing, and that was one of those things where. I told myself I was only going to breed like two or three females and I ended up pairing like all of mine, which was like five, uh, which is fine and all, except for when you suddenly go from zero to like 80 babies in only a matter of a couple months, you know, a year. And that's, that is one lesson. I feel like people can tell you all day long, you know, pay attention to how, how many animals you're pairing, pay attention to how much you're producing. Because a lot of people are like, yeah, 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 whatever. It's a, you know, it's a clutch of 10 corns, whatever. Okay, well, when you have five corns laying 10 clutches, yeah. even if you don't have 100% hatch rate, that's still a lot of babies. That's still a lot of pinkies, which it's a little different if you're breeding your own mice because that's not a problem. But mice are expensive. Mm -hmm. No matter where you get them from, frozen feeders are expensive, even just in the shipping. Uh, yeah. So like mental health, like that was, I, I knew I shouldn't have done it. 
Um, but I told myself, I was like, it'll be fine. Paired everything. And by the time it was all said and done, that was the last season that I bred Crestwoods. I was like, this was, this was stupid. You know, I, I was really kicking myself for doing that. And that's one of those things that people can tell you constantly, but, but it was stupid for you. It may not be stupid. Right. But it's just one of those things you just need to be mindful. It's like, okay, am I prepared to deal with this many mouths to feed? You know, each animal is going to add a certain amount of time to your cleaning regimen each week. You know, be that a minute, be that five minutes. It does add up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just, it's one of those, that's one of those lessons that I feel like people don't seem to understand until they go through it. Right. right. And after that, I really, I have zero desire to make that happen again. You know, unless it's, it's, I guess it's a little easier with snakes, but they still add up. But like yeah. geckos and stuff, especially that have to eat, you know, yeah. I fed mine like three times a week on diet. That took time. Making sure bottles were cleaned before I mix more Pangea up. That took time. Making sure I had enough Pangea on a hand regularly. That took time and money. Pangea is expensive. You look about the price of Pangea diet per pound, it's like $20. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, physical demands. That's why I don't have ambient temps in my room because it's hot and I don't like to sweat. If you have an ambient room and you're spending more time in there, it might as well be a sauna. Um, and then just, you know, do not, you know, not feeling like it. Uh, there have been yeah. plenty of times and everyone's gone through this where maybe they've had a shitty week or they've had a shitty day. And it's like the last thing you want to do is go in there and deal with a really pissed off uh, Chondro or, you know, Karibo or Ganisoma, whatever, you know, that's just, yeah. and that's okay. You know, you, they don't all, not every day has to be awesome and stellar. Like it's okay to take a day off, but you know, as long as it's not to the detriment of the animals, you know, they're you're just, you're going to have days where you're like, this sucks. I don't like this. I don't enjoy it. Yeah. But as long as that's not every day, it's okay to have a couple off days in my opinion. Right. So Dominique says a great thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. She says, I think we need to remember that not every animal needs to be a breeder. Mm -hmm. And if you don't breed anything ever, it doesn't delegitimize your place in the community or contributions to the hobby. And I think that's great. Um, I think I, that's where it's flipped a little mm -hmm. bit. Like social media has made it, you know, everyone else is breeding. I should be too. Right. And see, my problem with that whole conversation though, is it's very easy for me to say that when I'm the one breeding stuff. And when I get things, I tend to get it in pairs Sure. So am I a hypocrite for saying, you know, you shouldn't buy stuff and be, you know, be ready to breed it at as soon as you get it or anything like that. You know, it's, I take some time with things before I pair them, you know, before I decide to make more of them. I've, I've talked Absolutely. about that, making sure you actually enjoy a species before you decide to make more of it. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, it's tough because it's hard to, for me to tell someone else you don't have to breed when I'm, breeding and that's that comes down to knowing your limits is, again you know but you also have animals that you don't intend to breed yes so there you go you know you know i have my pair of bread or bread lee uh i don't know if i'll ever pair them it's gonna take my female a long time to get to size i can tell you that so maybe by the time she gets old enough if my male's even still alive by then you know we'll see right? but it's one of those things where i just enjoy that species and i'm okay with having them whether i breed them or not right yeah, totally. The um, I come from a time when if you kept snakes, you really didn't breed them. They were just pets. And then there were breeders 
and then I watched the transition over the over about 10 years where it was you weren't cool unless you were a breeder. Mm-hmm. You, know, you didn't know what you were doing unless you were a breeder. And I hated that to the point where I almost shunned private breeders because I was like, you're an asshole. You're just breeding it so that you can get you know street cred and, and make money off of these living creatures. And obviously my thought process in that has highly evolved um, to the point where now I have projects that I'm going to work on. But it, it evolved because not because I wanted to make money or because I felt like, oh, these animals are old enough. I'm denying them their reproductive rights. No, it was because I wanted to push my hobby to the next level in theory. And I wanted to watch the, the miracle of life with these specific species. Mm -hmm. You know, I have no morphs. Um, I have nothing that's lime bread. I just wanted to pair good looking animals and go from start to finish and give them the full life cycle and watch these babies. And, you know, if I can give babies to friends or if I can sell babies, great. You know, I, I know that this is a bottomless money pit for me and that I will never recuperate the funds that I've, you know, exacerbated over the years, but I'm okay with that because this is I, what I love. This that's, what I a, that's a big leg up too, is if you re- resign yourself to the fact that it's likely never going to, like you're never going to make the amount of money you put into right. it. Right. And you're okay with that. Yep. Like I'd be happy if I can just get my stuff to pay for itself. Right. And that, that's the I'd goal. Of really content. That's the goal of every person that wants to breed. You know, that, that is the goal in some degree or another. Some people do it for a living. Some people do it because they love it. And then the perk is if you do sell them, yeah, I'll help you pay for a couple bags of rodents or whatever. Right. You know? um, but we also have a big group of, of, of up and coming individuals that they need to remember that they will not pay their light bill or their water bill because they're hoping these eggs hatch. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. You've got to do it because you love it. You got to do it because you want to enjoy it. The money might be the bonus. You know what I'm saying? Right. I would much rather give away offspring to friends or people I know that are going to cherish it and appreciate it mm-hmm. than get a couple bags of, of, of mice or maybe, you know, some, some, a new rack or something. You know what and I mean? I, th- I think a lot of people in our circle, you know, our, our gang, uh, you know, some of the NPR guys too, like it's, I'm seeing a shift where people are okay with that. Like they're not looking to make money off something. Like if I have a pair of bears and someone's like, Hey, I'm super interested in these, you know, I got plenty of friends that are, that have gotten into bears, you know, like Brendan is a, is a good, Good example. He's into bears. You know, Brennan was like, "Hey, man, I want to get some more bears." Be like, you know, I got you. Like, I as long, knowing that someone has a passion for for a species or a genuine interest in a species, I have yeah. zero issues helping contribute to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I have uh, just to go back to my one buddy Chris with the with Valentino the carpet python. He got a pair of chondros from one of our good friends who is a former snake guy. He just there was only two snakes he had left. And he was moving and he's like, hey, man, I don't want these anymore. Just take them. Give them a good home. And they were uh, he has a uh, Wamina and a Lyra, both by Greg Maxwell. And they are probably seven or eight years old now. They are flawless. They are flawless in every degree of chondro essence. Right. And I told him, I said, dude breed these things, you know, they're gorgeous. You're going to have a great time. And he says, cause he used to work strictly with me. He goes, bro, they live healthy lives. They enjoy their lives. I enjoy them. I'm not breeding. 
I said, but you don't want to, you know, make some babies and see the miracle of life. He's like, do you know how many baby chondros I've had to deal with over the years? Like hundreds, turn you off. hundreds. So he had the ability to have that experience. But I also think that deep down, had he never had that experience, he still wouldn't breathe them because he just doesn't, he just doesn't need to. He's enjoying them for what they are. So. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Don that it's become this thing where, you know, if you're not breeding, you're not legit. Right. Um, see, and my only issue there is people giving advice on breeding something they've never bred, where they're just regurgitating information they found online. Yep, and I was waiting for you to bring that up. Excellent. Like, I... Uh, there's something about hands-on experience to me that that holds a lot more weight than someone's, you know, reading something off of MBF or another group post or whatever. Uh, any of the forums or something. It's like I could go and find that information. You know, yeah. like, most of the time, if I have a question when it comes to breeding, it's something a little more specific that you know maybe I can't find any. Like with Boiga, uh, I don't know. I just like when I have someone who who. Condros being a good example, you know, they just get a, they, they've been in Condros for all like six months and they're saying, you know, giving people advice on how to breed. That makes me a little nervous. Not that the information that they say is necessarily wrong, but to me, it's like, I, I personally, if I saw that and I was new into something and I had never done it myself, like, yeah, I may have read all the books and know all the stuff, but I'm going to let the guys that have actually had the hands-on experience and have produced multiple clutches chime in because I don't feel like I can really contribute anything other than what anyone else could find online. Yeah. <clears throat> Very true. Um, I also think that someone who says, I want to get, I want to breed coastal carbon pythons, Right. Uh, and they go out and they buy a pair of proven breeders where, you know, someone was breeding snakes and they got a baby on the way, whatever. And, uh, hey, look at that luscious beard. Look at that handsome man. What up? What up? So I see someone who wants to get car uh, coastal carpets and, you know, somebody is having a baby or they're moving and they want to get rid of their animals. So they buy these proven breeders and the first year, they breed them and they're successful and congratulations to them. Kudos to them, but that does not give them any frigging clout. And that's oh, I did this. I did that. No, you did a great job. You know, your animals look good. They're healthy. You produce great animals, but you got to get off that high horse because you didn't earn any clout in that regard. And maybe that's dickish of me to say that. Um, but I would never, if I got, you know, I got water pythons last year, right? Let's say I got adults and I burn them this year. That does not make me the water python guy. It doesn't. Because there's plenty of other people that have been doing it way longer than me that I have to look up to and, and focus on and learn from them. And eventually one day maybe I will be the, the water python guru. But you can't just jump online and – you know what I mean? Does I think a lot – a lot, yeah, a lot of that is um, – you know, when someone asks me advice on – you know come you know when it comes to green trees or the boiga you know i'm going to tell them from my experience you know what you know what did i do when it came to incubating eggs and even then what i've done with incubating eggs with the boiga is i talked to, to chris i don't even know how you pronounce his last name it's like lugverd he's overseas in europe 
Yeah, he's, he told me what he does, and I've adopted that, and it's worked. Um, you know, when it came to pairing them, it's like I can only speak to my experiences, what I've noticed. It may be different for somebody else. You know, I don't speak in terms of like, you know, this is how I did it, so that's how it should be done. It's it's very much a, this is what worked for me. Try it. It might work for you. It might not. If not, here's some people you should hit up a message and talk to them about it. Yeah. And, and you know damn well that, that that guy, Chris, who is literally the quintessential... read more Boyga than that guy. The, he is the quintessential Boyga expert of Boyga husbandry and captivity and all that jazz. I guarantee you he still looks to other people that have been doing things longer than him or differently than him to get their opinion and get their advice. I guarantee. That's why Lowe's has the best slogan, never stop improving. Oh, what happened to Bill? I don't know. Maybe he froze. Mm. So, did that? Did we 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 answer the question appropriately, or we we tangent? I think we did. I think we did. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't think anybody has to breed to be legitimized. But when I, you when you come in when you roll up into groups and you start talking like you've got it all figured out and you've done it all, you're not going to make any friends that way because people like you and myself who have been in it for an extended period of time see right through the bullshit. And, yeah. you know, if you're going to do that, your information better be on point because people are going to make you look real stupid real quick. And, you know, Eric and Owen have talked about this, too, countless freaking times is don't go into a group and say, hey, I just oh, he got a Wi-Fi in the snowstorm. Well, hopefully you come back, Bill. Um, you know, Eric and I would talk about this constantly where somebody jumps in a group and they're like, I just got this adult pair. How do I breed them? Like. You can't do the homework that we all did, you know. Like, See, I'm that's sure not even my that's not even my initial reaction. My initial reaction is, what's the rush? Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a great point. Why? Like, like why? I'm guilty of that. I got a I got a male gecko from a, a, a guy upstate, and the gecko looked prime. Man, he was ready to rock and roll, and the previous owner had already cooled him for me. And uh, I was talking to one of my friends, and. Uh, and I was like, dude, I can't wait to pair this gecko up. He's like, why? I was like, because he's he's primed and ready to go. He goes, so what? He's like, leave him chilled, leave him in this thing, do it next year. And I was like, get a point. Why Bruce Lee said it best, man. He said it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. It's true. 100 percent Enjoy we- like enjoy the ride. Enjoy the process. You know, if you get younger animals, like like what Brennan was saying, buy babies, grow them up, successfully breed them, you know. I, you get so humidity. We'll get back to Thomas in a second. Like, yeah, you, I, I get so much more satisfaction in knowing that I raised up some bairds over the last two or three years that they are now they'll be ready. They'll be going into hibernation again at the end of this year, and they'll be bred next year. I'll get a lot of enjoyment. The corn project. I've had that female for five or six years. Yeah, like I'm gonna. That's gonna be so much more satisfying to me that I spent. You know, you put in the the, the sweat equity and the time and stuff into raising these animals up that you get the babies, then whoever you know buys an adult pair throws them together they get babies cool you know they may get a satisfaction out of it but for me it's the process it's enjoying the it's enjoying the species while you have them and and like learning the quirks of the individual animals and these things like that it's i don't it's one of those things breeding is kind of just a plus yeah like just like you were saying like i breed the stuff i breed because i generally enjoy the species and i think it's cool as hell to make more cyania it's cool as hell to produce more bairds uh, one of the good points that I think was brought up on NPR too, uh, you know, is if all these species were worth a dollar, 
at that point, are you, would you be working with something you really enjoy? Or would you be working with something that, you know, maybe puts some extra money in your pocket that you don't necessarily yeah. enjoy? Yeah. But Thomas said, humility goes a long way uh, to learn anything. Being an arrogant asshole is the quick way to gain nothing, even if you have the skills to back it up, which is true. Yep. Wholeheartedly. And Dom asked, do you think there should be a set amount of time an animal should be in your collection before you attempt breeding to monitor for health issues or anything? Personal opinion. Some people don't care. They just throw them together. And if something bad happens, that's on them. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have our quarantine procedures, uh, whether it be 60 days, 90 days, 200 days, whatever it is. Um, I've had animals that, <laughs> I'll be honest, I still have animals that are in quarantine from the beginning, no, from 2019, because I can't shake uh, mites in this, mm-hmm. in this rack. I have this one quarantine rack and I can't shake it. And I finally figured out what it is and it's grapevine. Oh yeah, all those cracks and crevices and stuff, dude. That's what it is. So so I've 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 upped my mite kill and I've been more monitoring and attentive to it. And I got rid of all the grapevine because it's the bane of my existence. I hate using grapevine. It mold like every time I've used it, it turns black in like a week. Yeah. So the only thing that has grapevine in it still is my female brittles enclosure because it's done up naturalistic. And it's so dry in there. It's almost a, it's honestly like a, it's a desert in there. See, in that in that context, it's great. Like it's perfect for dry enclosures. But you're using it for like Amazons or anything tropical or subtropical. It is a nightmare. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you what 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 has the mites is uh, one uh, is the Darwins and one IJ. And it's just like I couldn't figure out like, where the frig are these mites coming from. Like I've done this for a year now, almost over a year. And it's and I keep them in quarantine for that. But normally, it's I do ninety days normally. You know? So I, there's actually a really good PDF on mites. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm gonna upload it to the group because oh, good, that good. tells that tells that will tell you a lot about not only just like the life cycle, but you know how they prefer dark spaces, humid spaces. Um, talks about their life cycle and everything like that, and it's very informative. I actually I really liked it. It I learned a lot from it. But yeah. Oh, um, you want to do over unders? Well, is there any more questions or no? Uh, no, I think that was all of it. Well, no, no, I take that back. So Thomas asked what the best source is to learn more about Boyga books, websites, fellow keepers, etc. Top five cigars from last year. Uh, so Boyga, I there, there's a Boyga group on Facebook, and you guys know that I'm not the biggest fan of Facebook groups, but this one is pretty pleasant. Not a whole lot of bullshit. Um, Thomas, I'll send you an invite to it tonight or tomorrow if I forget. Uh, <clears throat> you too. There's old uh, there's old forums that that I found helpful when I was breeding mine, and I had that swelling thing. You know that remember the swelling oh, yeah. with the hemipenes and stuff. I'm gonna write about that in the article because there was no information other than an old forum post on some Boyga forum. You know, in 2011. Right. Uh, so, I mean, there's really not any books, unfortunately. I'm hoping that changes at some point in the near future. Um, as much as Chimera has been, you know, done as much as they have, I, I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been one done yet. But I could see that being more about maybe the natural history and, you know, the species 
in the genus across the range because there's a lot of species of boiga that we don't have in captivity, especially here in the States. Over in Europe, they have a, a couple more that aren't really, we don't see over here often. Um, so, uh, and then top five cigars from last year. See, that's tough. If we're talking about cigar releases, I don't really know how many I tried that I can think of off the top of my head. But as far as like new stuff that we got in last year at the shop, um, the Agonorsa Guardian of the Farm, uh, they came in three sizes. The JJ, which is like a five by 52, I think. That has become one of my favorite cigars, bar none. Like I need to buy a box of those things because they, I don't, that blend with that size works so well. And every time I smoke it, I'm like, damn it, these things are good. Um, so those, the genetic deformity Neanderthal from Romacraft. So that one's different because it has the, not only the Connecticut broadleaf that you get on the Cro-Magnon, but also that Ecuadorian Habano that you get on the Aquitaine. Um, I really enjoyed that one. So that's two. Um, we recently, the my father connecticut we finally brought that back after it being gone for about two years um that's a great connecticut on the market um got a little more flavor to it, a little more punch to it than other connecticut's uh the la promesa from my father was also a good one that one was released last year uh after the lagrana ferta came out I, I really hated that cigar i tried it multiple times i can't get into it um i was losing faith in my father honestly it was that bad <laughs> uh but the La Promesa came out and completely restored my my faith in that company. And um, the Cigar of the Year, that that aging room. Uh, which one was that? Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that one, too. Uh, that was a, That's a good smoke. So that's mine. I, I'm the wrong guy to ask that because I smoke all old shit. I, I, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like new electronics. Let everyone else test it for a year or two before I buy it. <laughs> I gotta okay, so I'm gonna take the La Promesa back. I gotta put that Dunbarton Tobacco Sin Compromiso in there because I'm gonna have to bring you one of those, dude. Those are so good. It took me like at first I wasn't crazy about them. I was kind of like, eh, they're all right, they're expensive, they're okay. But the more I smoked them after they sit in the humidor for a little while, boy, that is a good smoke. It's like seventeen ninety five for the biggest one, the biggest size. But oh my god, it's worth every penny. Nice, nice. So over and unders. Well, hold on, Jeff. Oh. Jeff said, "What's the superior Morelia?" We already know that. We already uh, know that. Spread us. Uh, he said, "What are you guys most excited about moving forward involving THP or oh, THN yes. as a whole?" He said, "Who are your role models in the hobby, and what are some ways they inspire you? There are different ways to cut a cigar. What are some of the advantages of the different cuts, and which do you use or recommend?" So we can do the cut thing real quick. Yeah. V cutters, these Kaliri ones, I love it. It's a great cutter. It's like the best gift anyone's ever given me, Smitty. Thank you. Um. Most lighters have a punch on it, which basically a punch is almost like a biopsy. You just plug a little hole in the end of it. Um, and then you have straight cuts, which is just your your straight blades, your traditional cutter. Um, and I don't I don't think you don't see a difference as far as flavor goes between the three of them. It really boils down to personal preference. It's nice to have a punch on hand if you don't have a cutter with you. Like they're handy for that. Um, but I mean, I'm a V cutter guy because I can just cut something and not have to think about it. I don't have to worry about cutting too deep. Um, right. My only gripe with these is if you get in the thinner cigars like Coronas and Lanceros, you can cut too deep on these because the sort of the pocket is pretty deep and the, the cut itself is deep. So 
it boils down to personal preference and what you like. There, I don't, I don't notice any difference in the flavor. Remember, children, cut them deep, you weep. Cut them thin, you win. Which is why when you do a straight cutter, the traditional, you know, grandpa says don't put your finger in a cutter. Uh, I actually prefer the ones that are only one-sided. So the back of the cutter is completely flat. And that gives you probably, oof, maybe a 16th of an inch maybe or less. It's uh, the same thing to these. You, like you can only go so right. far. Right. You can only go so far. And But I like it because it doesn't matter if I have a super-duper thin Lancero or I got a big like 64 gauge. It butts up to it flat. And I'm only cutting off that, you know, a mm -hmm. couple foul that's on there um, because I'm guilty of it too. I'm talking to someone. I'm not paying attention. I stick the stick in and I got to cut it and I cut the whole damn, you know, crown off. And, and it's especially, it's especially tricky with torpedoes. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Stuff like, like this, the ones with the pointed tips, it's very easy to cut too far on those that it, one does kind of acquire a little bit of finesse, but you can still use V cutters on torpedoes. Sure. I've actually, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I was going to say is I've used V cutters at an angle on a torpedo and I'll do it just like almost like a, a diagonal slit on the side of it, um, which is, gives a unique draw because if I'm putting it in the side of my mouth, cause I'm doing something. Um, but I've also done the, the, the double V or like an, an X pattern, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. I call it the crown cut is kind of what crown, I call yeah, it. And that's basically, so you'll take this and you'll cut it. Actually, I'll do it on one of these right now. I'll show you. Yeah, show us. Do it. Picard and Cola, do it, do it. I'll do it on this, this Roma craft. But there's, once you start smoking a lot, you'll notice that certain wraps or certain brands, or whatever, maybe have uh, a tighter draw, or you may desire a tighter draw or a weaker draw or whatever. Um, and uh, there you go. So Justin's that's, cut it that's once. the one cut. Right. And then you cut it the other way, and it creates an X or a plus sign or whatever you want to call it. Or, or a crown. If you have a bigger gauge, like a, like 62 and plus, some guys will do three cuts and make it look like an actual crown. You know, under crown cigars, they'll, they'll do that a lot with like a really, really sharp one. And they'll, for the photos and the magazines and stuff, they'll take a little file and they'll just shave it down so it looks like a perfect, you know, king's crown. Um, but I like to do the X, the X cut or the crown cut because – it gives me way more draw, especially if something's tighter. I will say these Perdomas are not very complex, so the flavor you're going to get from start to finish is going to be about the same. Some cigars you'll get, a, you know, like the that Leaf Sumatra that was in that last sampler. That's I a good example. It. That one starts out with some white pepper, and then it gets into like this sort of citrusy orangeness to it, and then yeah. the last bit is like milk chocolate. It's very odd because you'll... You'll notice it transition sort of if you're really paying attention to it. But. And it's funny because the first time I smoked that, Justin didn't tell me like what to expect. And then I got to that back third and I was like, man, this is sweet. Like, what is this? Like, I couldn't put my tongue on it, you know? And he's like, it's white chocolate. And then my mind was blown. I was like, you're, you're correct. That's crazy. It's crazy. So cover cutter is pretty well, but right? What are yeah? What are you what are you most excited about involving THN? Um, I'm excited that this year for for THP, obviously I'm I'm more immersed in it now, and I'm eternally grateful for that because 
you know, I love this crew. I love our friends and our, our community. And, you know, for a long time I was out of it. And now I really feel like I've been able to immerse myself in it. Thanks to you and Billy and Jake and everybody else. And I'm really eager to see some of the up and coming people that we have scheduled for the year. And a lot of, you know, having repeat people back on is always fun. And I really like the diversity of the, of the network because even though you and I are snake guys through and through, you know, we keep other animals, we have appreciation of other animals and like, uh, you know, getting Colonian people on and, you know, more gecko people and salamander people. And like, it's just, it's going to be awesome. man. It's just going to be a, a beautiful kaleidoscope of herpetofauna. And mm-hmm. I'm excited about it. I'm stoked. You know, 2021's only been going for a month and a half, month and a half now, and it's been pretty good for me. It's been pretty good for friends and starting fresh. And I'm excited, man. I love it. I mean, it's been growing like crazy. I'm gonna look at where we're at right now as far as stats, but I mean, we're well over 114,000 plays on SoundCloud alone. Wow. Total, like lifetime. Wow. Which, given next month, is actually gonna be three years. Wow. Yeah, we're 1,000. 114,937,000. 114,937. It's awesome. It's been crazy, man. It's just so. And I love, maybe it's the social media aspect. Maybe it's because, maybe it's because we're putting out a good product. I don't know. I don't want to call it that, but the interaction with everyone has just been awesome, man. Mm -hmm. Like, I get, like I was saying earlier, like people message me on Instagram with whether it be just saying, Hey man, I listen to the show and it's awesome. I love it. Or, Hey, I didn't know you like those. Let's talk about those. And like, it's just, it's really, really been a big part of my life and I'm so happy to be part of it. And I'm so eager to see what the rest of it's going to unfold. And Thomas asked, do y'all rest cigars after shipment? I found that I am more likely to smoke a bad cigar. If I don't, there is actually something to that. Um, so actually, when we had Steve Saka from Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust at the shop a couple months ago, he talked about that and how he wished retailers would kind of give the cigars some time to to rest in a humidor before they got put on the shelf. Uh, you know, obviously, he realizes that a lot of shops probably aren't going to do that. They want to get it out as soon as possible because you can't sell things that aren't out and available for sale. Um, but I have found with a lot of cigars, we'll initially get them in. I'll crack open a box. I'll pull one out and I'll smoke it right then and there. And I won't be crazy about it. <clears throat> but then if I give it, you know, a month or so, two weeks and come back to it, it has had some time to really sort of, you know, there's off gassing, you know, with ammonias and stuff like that. It has had time to, to really mellow out some and, and get a lot smoother. So I do agree. I, and I try to, like, if I notice the box is getting low, I do try to, cause they all come wrapped up in cellophane most of the time or some, not cellophane, but plastic basically. So I do try to cut them out, cut that plastic off and give them some, let them breathe you know, before I replace that box on the shelf um, with as many cigars as we have, sometimes that's harder to do, but you know, I do agree. They do. Sometimes they do need some time. Who's your role models though, Phil? Oh, geez. Um, what are ways they inspire you? Uh, I've got cliche ones and I've got, you know, ones that people may not expect, excuse me. Um, 
me clear my throat real quick, excuse me. Um, I hate saying it because it's almost cliche at this point, but we always make the joke about how Rob Stone is our hero, but the man's very, very impressive in a multitude of venues and his knowledge base aspires me to learn more and his uh, attentiveness to husbandry inspires me to be more proactive in my animals enclosures and my, my general, you know, observation of them. See you later, Brent. And, uh, I don't know. I, I definitely think that he is one. Um, I'll be honest. Billy Hunt is a major, <laughs> major, uh, mentor to me in ways that he doesn't even realize. I wish I could have his level headedness. Yeah. His, I've never his, seen Billy upset. Well, like legitimately pissed. Like, yeah. you know how I get riled up over some stuff, you know, mm -hmm. certain things. Right. And I'm like, if I could just have that robotic spirit that Billy Hunt has. But see, that's the thing. Like is the Terminator. I don't, but see, he's not, he's not a robot. And I don't want to call him. I know you're, you're joking, but like, it's a level of rationale that I aspire to attain by thinking outside the box and saying, okay, this is what happened. This is how I can do this. This is how I can do that. But I, I meant more in the sense of his time management and his, his general passion for his animals is, is breathtaking. And his ability to adapt his animals to be to be set up, man. Like there's no qualms. He's like, okay, I want to get into this. This is what I have to do. This is what I'm going to do. And he deploys it. And, and it's awesome, man. You know, he, he's an awesome individual. You know? How many times have I been like, damn it, Billy, get mad about something just for once. <laughs> he's a, he, and he's, he's like, no, nah, man, he's like, it's not worth getting upset about. And I'm like, yes, it is. He's, he's vented to us. His frustration. Yeah, but it's not, it's never like it's, it's, I don't want to use the word watered down in a bad way, but it is very like subdued. He's just very, yeah. he's very in control. He is. He's very in control. Yes. Um, trying to think of someone else who Nipper? it's hard. Most definitely Nipper, 110% Nipper. Um, Nipper is awesome because Nipper will message me on Facebook with uh, amazing animals and we'll talk about them. And then he'll also send me, you know, hilarious he first jokes and it's just he i genuinely aspire like how do i phrase this i wasn't gonna say nipper because a i don't want to give him a big head because i love the bastard yeah we know that that's what's gonna happen but i wasn't gonna say him because i don't want to put him on that pedestal <laughs> you don't want to give him the satisfaction <laughs> no no i don't want to put him on the pedestal for me because i like the relationship that we've developed and I don't want it to be like, oh, my God, Nipper messes me again. Like, I don't want to fangirl over him. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. Um, but, dude, like, I look at his his experiences in life with, with everything from work and family and friends. And he, he's traveled the globe. Yeah. And he has seen sites that I will see one day, hopefully with him. And uh, – and that is probably, I would say, hands down, he's probably the most motivational person that I have in my life right now. Um, in all in all manners is the word, both in mental and physical and reptilian, you know. So, Nipper, a hundred percent. 
and I, dude, I really wasn't going to say him, but I, I can't not because he, it fills all those checklists, you know? Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I, I can't really disagree with any of those. I mean, you know, just something I've been super interested in as of, as of late is sort of just the philosophy and mindset behind what we do. Right. And I think that's one of the things that I appreciate the most about Rob is the fact that he can articulate it so well. And when he talks about it, it's just the stream of consciousness that like me, you know, when I talk about this, we see it all the time. Like I stutter and I lose my train of thought mid sentence and stuff like that. Like with Rob, it's just, it's all very like, it's just there. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah, like his, his overall philosophy with stuff is all things I really agree with. And I wish there was more of in the hobby. And like, that's something that we've done you know, with the Repticart streams, I've tried to take that approach of like, I don't necessarily want to know how you're keeping the animals. I want to know why you keep them the way you keep them, you yeah. know, and with the, with the industry spotlights and the magazine and stuff, it's like, I could ask you all the questions about how you're keeping, uh, I don't know, like Frank Payne is the next industry spotlight in the magazine. You know, I could ask him how he keeps the flying lizards all day long, but that doesn't really tell you anything about him. Like, I want to know why, he's focused yeah. on those. Like, why is he focused on carpet chameleons and not veils and Panthers and all the other stuff? Like, why do you do the things you do? And why do you like, what is, what was your, your, your mindset behind going the route you did and sort of trying to figure out how to breed flying lizards because he and one other guy apparently are the only ones in the country that have done it. You know, it's like, there's something there like that can be learned for everybody, whether you're keeping ball pythons, whether you're keeping Bowellens pythons, whether you're keeping flying lizards or you're keeping bearded dragons, like, there's something to be learned from the philosophy side of things. And that's, I think why I've been so hooked on that lately and wanting to know sort of the how and why people came to the way that they do things. And that's one of the things about Rob and, you know, talking to Matt most and stuff too, you know, those are guys that it's one of those, they, they just, they, in a sense, they like keep their head down and they focus on the species that they're doing. And they, they really focus hard on cracking the code on some things and figuring some things out. And, um, you know, like Nipper's a good example of that too. Nipper's got some stuff where, like the Langaha, you know, the leaf nose snakes. It's oh, like yeah. Not everybody, not everybody is successful with those, and he's he's been doing great. You know, Ryan Dumas is another one with the with those in particular. He's been having a lot of success with keeping those and them doing really well and lizards and stuff like that. And it's yeah. just that, <clears throat> like the, the a lot of the guys that have been in the hobby a long time. That's that's what I really want to get down and know. You know, it's like yeah, I could ask you how to take care of these things. Uh, and it's probably not going to be a whole lot different than how I'm doing it. Uh, right, I mean, they, right. they may have some sort of secret trick or something, but I want to know just, just how you go about establishing hard, you know, Ganyasoma, like Rob is a good, good example of that. Like, what do you, what have you done and why have you done that? And what have you observed that, you know, maybe other people might've missed. It's just, there's a, there's philosophy side of it is just something that I've been absolutely obsessed with lately, but Nipper's cool too. And Billy, Billy's awesome. We all, you know, we all love Billy. Casey, Casey's drive to focus solely on one species, like Brettles, uh, is really impressive. I think there's a lot to be learned from that. Um, obviously, the guys at NPR, you know, Eric, I love being able to talk to Eric and stuff all the time. He's he's always super helpful. And I think he kind of approaches things in a similar manner where he's more interested in the in the how you got there rather than how you did it, you know. Yeah. So, uh I also think uh, another one that I I look at I, I I don't talk to him on a regular I I don't talk to him at all 
Um, he probably has no idea who I am, and I'm okay with that. It's not about that. Um, but like Nathaniel Frank from M Toxins. Yeah. The dude, dude. He was, he's awesome. He listens to the show. Like when we had yeah. him on, like, and I said, Hey, would you be willing to come on, you know, this podcast? He's like, Oh yeah, dude, I listen to you guys all the time. I was like, what? So damn it. He's going to hear this. Um, I don't know no, if he listens to this, but I know I, he listens to THP. Yeah, that's fine. So, uh, he, I, I watch his growth of his passion and his business and the things that he is doing to promote venom research and saving lives is phenomenal. You know, the, the venom that he is extracting and giving to the medical world is uh, it's, there's no other, there's no better synonym than life-saving because it's not just going for anti-venom. It's going for cancer research and diabetes research and all, and, and just breaking down enzymes and peptides and proteins and, and, us being able to learn from it and his collection is that he's amassing and part of me is a little is a little envious because i'm like crap if he gets it he's just gonna breed it and keep all the babies for himself <laughs> so like that's kind of poopy in that regard but but the the work that he's doing the facility that he's built like it that's that's the passion man that's it yeah i really enjoyed having him on he's a very easy guy to talk to you know and i one of the things about his episode that stood out to me the most was him and, you know, talking about ego and, you know, he used to post on Instagram a lot, especially on his stories and stuff. And he pulled back and he said, I just realized, you know, after a while, like my ego is just kind of getting out of hand. And I think that takes a lot of, uh, not necessarily courage, but to be able to take a step back and say, okay, I'm getting out of hand. I don't think a lot of people could do that. Like they may be fully cognizant that it's happening, but few people have the, have the will to go ahead and say, all right, I know what I need to do to change it. Yeah. And especially in the venomous world where that kind of stuff just runs rampant, you know, and, oh, yeah. uh, that's talking to hit like guys like him and Jack Vicente, uh, you know, Jack Vicente having him on to talk about coral snakes was awesome. Like it's guys like that, man. Like we need to learn as much as we can because you know, we're not getting any younger. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tim Morris is another one. I talk about Tim a lot and I I like that because Tim's done a lot in the world of Condros and he's fully, he's an open book. He's fully willing to share all of it. Yeah. You know, and Brian Fry. Yeah. True self introspection is a rare trait. It is Thomas. Yeah. Tom. What's the next question? Um, think that was that was all of them okay cool but we have some over and unders yeah we do ryan cox i asked the group to to throw some at us right and the first one is dart frogs overrated underrated Oof, it's tough i'm gonna, say... We're gonna say in general not necessarily like thumbnails over like dendrobateds just dart frogs I'm going to say underrated. Poor K. Uh, I'm going to say underrated because the so many people see them not set up. I don't want to say correctly, but not set up to the nines. You know what I mean? And I feel like dart frogs specifically even over like Mantellas, um, dart frogs 
part of it is not just keeping the animal. It's keeping, it's the husbandry of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's that window into the forest floor. And, and the Jeff natural, and Jeff says, oh, of course he does. So setting them up legitimately and getting it going and having your own little group of frogs and watching the forest floor and the dynamics of their interaction with one another and everything grow and take off. Yeah. And all of that is just breathtaking, but you don't always see that. And I feel like the reason why is because there's people that keep them like that. And there's people that keep them because they just like the dart frogs, which is cool. It's fine. But I think people see the, big elaborate thing and they go, well, I can't do that. I'm not going to do mm-hmm. that. And that, and that makes it underrated. Well, that's how it was for me. I remember as a kid wanting dart frogs and seeing the setups and the things involved. And I was like, man, that's a lot. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of, that's a lot of maintenance and stuff. And of course, once you become an adult and you're financially independent and stuff like that, and you can do whatever you want. And sure. I will agree that in general, that I think they are underrated. Um, yeah. I do think there are some groups and species that are overrated. Sure. Um, but in general, I do think if more people tried them out, even if it was just like one tank of one of the smaller yeah. species, I think they'd realize just how cool they are. Um, yeah. And they're not they're not nearly as difficult as I think there's this that old myth husbandry kind of thing from back in the day where people thought that they had to be kept, you know, super specific in certain parameters. And it was, right. you know, the 90s way of doing things. I think now, like, they are a lot easier than people think they are. I'm going to expand on something. Uh, the same way that we set up a fish tank in preparation for fish in terms of getting the tank established, would you recommend that with darts? Yeah. Most people will tell you, like, get it planted and then wait a month or so. And that's mostly just so the plants cycle out any fertilizers and stuff they have. And it gets time to like root. If you're keeping bigger species like phyllobates, you know, terribilis and stuff like that, the, the mints and like some of the bigger tinctorias, you definitely want to make sure those plants are kind of taken off and growing because they're so big. They'll, they just kind of trample everything. And so if you have a small cutting of something that's hasn't really taken root yet, I think, you know, it's kind of DOA when you just throw frogs in there. But okay, um, I mean, a month is kind of what, what you'll see is, is recommended most of the time you know some guys like reed you know he'll say just give it you know two or three weeks or whatever but i always waited about a month before i put anything in there just to make sure it was all doing okay and all the chemicals and stuff that might have been in there you know if you're misting it still regularly you know you're kind of washing away into the residual stuff and whatnot yeah cool Um, the next one cox had for us was anoles under in the hobby under i do then they're underrated i think people look at them as a cheap almost trash lizard that is used as a feeder or a center and i think that if people sat back and watched them in a naturalistic enclosure much like you would darts I think they would really appreciate what they are. I would have to, so greens, I would say are, I don't even know if they could be rated as overrated because I don't, there's not enough people legitimately keeping them. Uh, I think they're actually, they require a lot more than people think they do. Yeah. Uh, 
Like they need a much bigger setup than I think people realize. It's not like you can just yeah. get a group of three and keep them in a 10 gallon. Like, you know I mean, yeah. we're talking about something that would, if I showed you the dimensions, you'd go, that's actually huge for those lizards. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to like the genus in general and that whole group, uh, this website is definitely worth checking out. I just posted in the comments. There's so many species between you know, the Caribbean and the Americas mm -hmm. that we don't have in the hobby that are just so stunning that you would see that and you would think there's no way that's related to the little green and brown animals that we have here in the, you know, in the Southeast. And it's mind blowing. Like, so in that aspect, I think they're super underrated, you know, Cuban night animals. Um, there's, there's some things coming out with them. Like Ron St. Pierre's doing some really cool stuff with those, or at least he was at one point. I don't know if he still is, but yeah, they're neat. And you see some of these species down in, you know, South America and stuff. And it's just, they're unbelievable and how gorgeous some of these are. And you're, it kind of makes you appreciate the, you know, the species we have here a little more because you know that there's, there's more to them than just that. Yeah. Uh, Even so far as like the sexual dimorphism of them and then like mating colors and dewlap mm -hmm. colors and like, anyone who lives in South Florida who sees all the different invasive species we have in terms of a null wise, you know, you'll be sitting down on your patio having a cup of coffee and you'll see stuff, you know, some will come out and bask and they'll start dewlapping and head bobbing for female entertaining. And entertaining. Yeah. And the dynamic is just, it's awesome. It's like a soap opera, man. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good, That's it really good is, analogy. you know? So, all right. So the next one, small hooks for small snakes. Mm. I'm assuming he's like, I don't know if we're talking about like the mini hooks that you get from uh, like the, the small size hook that like get hook makes, or if we're talking about like the Brahms 3d printed, like micro hook, the pen hooks. Yeah. I, both. I, what do you mean? It doesn't matter. Both all small hooks, tiny hooks. I think I prefer shorter hooks over longer ones depending like with non-venomous stuff. Uh, yeah, we're not talking I'm not talking about length of shaft. I'm talking about actual size of the hook head and the hook oh, shoe. I got you. I'm talking about the whole thing, the whole package. Oh, okay. Okay. Those little pen hooks I didn't think I'd use them as much as I did and I mean mm -hmm. I brought the idea to David and I was like, "Here's what I think I need for baby chondros." And he knocked it out of the park, and I freaking love that thing. I use it for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And even then, like I have a small, I don't know, it's not even two feet, and it's just a short, short hook. And it's, I love shorter hooks. I just find it easier to move maneuver snakes with them. You know, um, yeah. you know the Ganyasoma and stuff. They're way longer than those hooks, but for whatever reason, having that shorter hook, I just, I, I come to prefer smaller hooks. Yeah. So I say that small hooks and short hooks are they have their place and i i use them in their place so i think it's species specific um taking venomous out of it uh that little pin hook from brahms is friggin amazing uh i use it with the baby radiators that i have for billy uh, because if i stick my hand in there and i go rummaging around the aspen it's going to get a defensive. It's going to mm -hmm. see this giant hand coming at it. You know, we're talking about something the size of a cocktail straw. So I'll just use that pin hook to just scoop it up and then place it in my hand. And then everyone's happy. Everyone's cool. You know, opposed to this big giant monster hand coming at you. The kielbasa um, fingers. They're big old kibasi fingers. Um, 
Now, at the same time, I've also had, uh, you know that little metal retractable one that has the, mm -hmm. the ballpoint pen clip on it so you can clip it on your shirt like an old man? Um, I've used those for tons of stuff. And it wasn't so much like, oh, I'm going to get bit. It was more just like ease of moving animals, like baby drumroll boas that were nippy, the baby berms that were nippy. Just scoop them up, put them in the container, scoop them up. Put them, you know, If I had a rack with poof, 100 baby drumrolls in it, I'm not going to grab each individual one or, or try and cradle it in my hand and be all yeah. nicey, nicey. I'm just going to scoop them up with the with the retractable hook, put them in the container, clean the tub, put them back. You know, it was easy. Um Certain species, I think, don't react to a small hook as well as you'd think. Like that jag I got from Billy, that thing is a, a lunatic. It's extremely defensive. So I've learned that if I try and use a hook, he's going to spaz out on me. But if I just go in there and just cover him with my hand and pick him up like a ball in my hand, then he may strike at my face. He might strike at my other hand. But at least I have him in my hand. He's, he's chilling in my hand. So uh, in terms of venomous... Uh, I think that a mini hook is essential. Uh, the neonate hook from Get Hooked is probably my favorite neonatal hook. I think that's the one that I'm talking about. That yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I use that with the, the wrinkles, and I like it because it's just long enough that if I have something that is small enough to fit on that hook shoe, I'm far enough away that I'm clear of danger. However, if I chose to choke up on the shaft, I can and almost yeah. hold it like a pencil or, or hold it in my hand almost like a drumstick and I can choke up on it and, and make it shorter essentially. I right. also like the fact that it's long enough that if I have to use both hands for whatever reason, I can just throw it under my armpit and or you know just mm -hmm. throw it under my armpit and just do what I gotta do. And so, they're lightweight. And they're extremely lightweight. Which is a big yeah. big plus. I don't really like heavy hooks. I don't know about you, but yeah, no, I well, so I'm 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 the guy that says you train in the beginning with a heavy steel hook, because if you can work uh, difficult species with a steel hook, then you can do anything with a steel hook, and then essentially graduate to the lightweight stuff. In my personal opinion, makes you faster. Yeah, it's like when you go like in terms of drumming, you go from like a two B size stick, yeah, to like a seven A. Dude, 7As are my fly, You fly on a 7A. Fly, yeah. Or like, what were those big white ones from Marching Band? What was that? They were huge. They were like a 50 ring gauge. Those might be the 7Bs, honestly. I'm not sure. I never really cared for the, the bigger ones like that. I always yeah, preferred like 5As or 7As. Yeah, they were, they were real big and heavy. They were made for... Uh, Ooh, oh, Monsoon. Yeah. Um, that, that came out of nowhere. Um, Florida. Yeah, it's fun. So yeah, I say baby hooks are great. That pin hook from Brahms is awesome. Uh, and then the mini hook from Get Hooked. The neonate hook. U.S. field herping. Whew. Underrated. But I think there might be a slight caveat to that because... Is there? To people who don't live in the U.S., it's like they're Australia for, you know, us. But okay. I do think that a lot of species native to the U.S. are underappreciated. Like the way that I look at a black racer, 
Yes. Like, okay, another one of those things. But someone like Nipper who might see, you know, a Burris or something like that, where they're like, yeah, it's a Burris. Like, I would think that was awesome to see one of those. Sure. They might see a Black Racer and lose their mind. To me, it's like, yeah, another one of those things. You know, Black Racers are a good example because, I mean, they're cool and all, but I, I kind of get tired of finding them. Yeah. You know, but I, that's, I try to look at uh, our species from the perspective of someone who doesn't have these in their backyard. Yeah, of course. And I think that the United States as a whole is extremely underrated in its herping because the people in the United States, for the most part, are blessed in the ability that they're allowed to have exotics. Mm -hmm. And because they're allowed to have exotics, they think in their mind, oh, it's this is just backyard stuff. Garter snakes are backyard stuff. Nerodia is backyard stuff. But Everything's See, exotic to someone. Right, exactly. And and that, that's something I focused on a lot is I've always been, obviously I'm spoiled to live in the Everglades, but I love field herping regardless of where I am. You know what I mean? And it doesn't matter if it's the same friggin' redback salamander that I've seen every single year growing up as a kid up, in, up north. It's still awesome every time. You know, I mean, a prime example is that little tantilla we found before the wedding. The night before the wedding, we found a little southeastern crown snake, which I haven't seen since I was a kid. I've never it's seen these, one in person. These little tiny, like centipede eating yep. rear fang snakes that are tiny, tiny, tiny. Like when you first look at it, you think it's a worm. I did. I found one the night before I got married, and it was like we were both losing our mind. It was like midnight, and we're in the woods at my parents' house, like freaking out over this little coronado we found. Yeah. And it's like you have an appreciation for that stuff because I mean to anybody else to be like yeah it's a little brown snake whatever like yeah. even even steraria you know the the decays and the occipital maculata the red bellies uh, yeah. I really enjoy finding those like those are cool they're super common yeah. um, we were just talking about those in the group yesterday like it'd be cool to try those out and have a little group of them and see if you could make something happen like David Kelly I think he has a group of them that he's keeping and he actually seems like he sees them a lot like they're actually out and about a lot. Uh, so I don't know, but I mean, at the same time, like West Texas, Southwest Texas in particular, that's, I that's the only place in the world right now that is like at the top of my list. And see, that's not the top of my list, but I would go there in a New York minute because I know I would enjoy every second of it. And you part, know? I mean, well, part of the reason it is at the top of my list is just because it's in our own backyard. It's right here, you know? And think about, think about the different ecosystems that our continent has to offer. Yeah. You know, it's incredible the amount of everything. It covers everything. Literally. I mean, is there hold on, let me think. There is every type of snake in North America, right? Minus like true vipers. Yeah, you're right. Minus true vipers. There's everything. And pythons? Well, would you count that Mexicana? I guess. Could you? It's a python, isn't it? You're talking about the the, the ground one. Yeah, that would that 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 would count, right? It's a python, right? Yes. I, I, I don't really know enough about them to be able to say one way or the other. I know they're labeled as a python, but you know, yeah. Calabar boas are still labeled boas. It's like, yeah, are they? yeah, yeah. So yeah, I say underrated. Panther chameleons. Over. Hundred percent over. In what way? 
Uh, I think that they are amazing species. I think that they are uh, rewarding species to someone that finds them rewarding. Um, I think that their level of difficulty is their level of difficulty is underrated. I think that people say, oh, they're difficult. They're difficult. And people are like, yeah, they are difficult. But then they don't realize that they're difficult. Like, does that make sense? I feel like people bite off more than they can chew. Um, Dom said shut up. Panthers rock. Okay. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. They're majestic. Their hormonal colors are fucking amazing. But people always tell you they're difficult and people don't listen. And then they get angry when it's not availed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I agree. Uh, I, I mean, I they're, they're, put Panthers. On, they're put on a pedestal as being this pinnacle of chameleon beauty. And they are, they're beautiful, but I think they're a pain in the ass. And unless you love them and that's what the, really the only thing to keep, it's pain in my ass. My main gripe with those is just the fact that they don't live very long. Like their lifespan really, I mean, most chameleons, like their lifespan is, is really not yeah that long. And so to me, it kind of sucks. Like, you have you get one it grows up it's gorgeous it's blue but you have about i don't know like what seven years with them just compared to snakes i guess not even you know and it it just sucks but in in the in comparison to like jackson's and veils and other species that are sort of commonly kept you know i kind of understand why they'd be at the top just because of all the colors and stuff you know oh yeah like dude I, I've, I've had ambilobies and ambanjas like they're gorgeous, man, but it doesn't want to be touched. It doesn't want to be looked at. Mm-hmm. It stresses out super easy. Half the colors that we love and admire are stress colors. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And like, it's, I, I almost feel bad too. You know, like I, I, uh, I used to do house calls for, for rich folks that had, you know, impressive displays in their home and stuff, whether it be dart frogs or chameleons or whatever. And I had one, he was a, he was some executive for something and uh, he had his own personal chef at the home and the guy did all three meals every single day, except for Sunday. And, you know, I would ask the chef say, Hey chef, did you see, did you observe this? Did you observe that? Cause he had a bunch of, bunch of Panthers in one big giant wall display. And he would say, yeah, man. He says that one female that went hormonal purple, she ain't having it. She's going to die. And like, I realized that it wasn't because of the setup. It was because the guy who owned it would constantly take her out and play with her because she's purple. And I'm like, dude, you, you can't do that. You're going to you're you're going to stress this animal out to death. And I think that that is overlooked by people. They're like, oh, it's fine, it's fine, you know. And all of a sudden, you see people with a, a yearling panther on their shoulder driving in the car. I'm like, it's not a beer dragon. You can't do that. So I think they're very overrated in that sense. Um, My favorite veils are the ones that are super dark and hating life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I don't want to keep one just to keep it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I had a veil as a kid, man. I think it was a dick. Dude, I I, I bred veils and uh, I stopped when I had a a flight cage full of babies. I was going to hold them back and let them get a little bigger and see which ones I was going to keep, whatever. And fire ants went in and killed them Ooh. all. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done. Because if this was a, another species of animal, it either could have taken it 
or it would have ate them or it would have been annoyed for a little while and I could have cleaned it off or whatever. But no, these chameleons were like, I don't know, man. Fire ants are pretty insidious. Yeah, but I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't, I was done with chameleons. I was like, that's it. I'm out. I'm out. What about Alterna? Oh, man. That one is kind of tough. That's super tough. And you, me, and Nipper were just talking about this. So, like, my personal opinion, I think Alterna are underrated because people don't necessarily know they are around or they exist or what they're capable of looking like. However, I feel like the people that obsess on them, not you and Nipper, but, like, the guys that are, like, the hardcore purists, they make them overrated. Agreed. That's pretty much exactly what I would... That's yeah. pretty much where I'm at with them. Now, I will say this. A, a species that I think is very underrated because people don't really know about them or they've been mudded out and people don't know what their potential is, is Pyromolina. I think Pyromolina are friggin' awesome. And, like, I really hope that Nipper gets those in the block eye because I'm going to live vicariously through him because I think those snakes are you so... Mean, cool. You remember in, like, the early 2000s, those were... Pyros were the they jam, were dude. Yeah. And then they kind of just disappeared. They fell off the face and, of the earth. And I remember guys were breeding them. They were line breeding them for side patterns. Mm-hmm. And like, who could get the most red between these marks? And like, dude, some of those animals just looked crazy. Crazy. And dude, that is one species that I will see in the wild before I die. I want that quintessential picture of it basking on a rock with the cactus and the mountainscape in the background. Like, like I will have that picture before I die because that species is awesome. But like, if you asked anybody who keeps colubrids for the most part, or someone who's up and coming in colubrids or just getting into it, like, Hey man, what do you think of Pyro Molina? They're like, what? Arizona mountain Kings. Never heard of it. <laughs> that one of those, like my, my dad randomly got his hands on a, a Ruthven's at one point when I was right. a kid. And I really actually enjoyed that snake a lot. I kind of, if I like hunt down a pair of Ruthven's Kings, like true real ones, not muddy. Yeah. Yeah. I would be all about them. Yeah. Uh, a buddy of mine who's doing uh, his brother and I did venomous with me a long time ago. And the three of us kind of became hunting buddies. And uh, he has a young daughter. I think she's six or seven now. And, uh, she he does construction he's doing a bunch of construction at the farm and doing the renovations at underground's retail store and uh she's like dad i really want to get a pet snake he's like awesome what do you want she goes well i want the ones that look like coral snakes but they're not coral snakes so he gets her a pueblin and she loves that snake and then she says i want one that looks a little different so he gets her a ruthens and uh and now he starts to get the gears turning and i think he's gonna get uh, uh, opposite sex for both of those because then he wants to show her, you know, the breeding. and the Yeah, egg. that'd be cool. And now he has this whole father-daughter hobby together, and I think that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. You know? because, because those species are, they're great pet snakes, you know. Well, we had one more thing to get to, which is COVID predictions, post-COVID predictions, but I think we should save that for next week because I got to pee really bad. 242 man so we are but yeah. i'm i'm happy with what we got covered so. I, so am i so am i this is episode 64 of brought, to you, brought to you by the fine people 
at Puget Sound Pythons. Yes. We will see y'all. Well, you won't see us, but you'll hear us Thursday. Yeah. THP 112. THP 112. Crazy, man. You said it was three years this month? March. March. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. And don't forget to go on YouTube and check out the Venomous Etiquette videos. Yeah. Uh, I will hopefully have another video either end of the month or maybe the first week in March if I can play my cards right. And uh, yeah, Venomous Husbandry on a methodical, boring, yet safe way. So, in a way, it's meant to be. It's meant to be. Venomous Etiquette videos, guys, on YouTube. Yes. So, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. Thanks for commenting and chatting. And, uh, yeah. See y'all later. Bye.